Hey everybody, we're back. Nate is not here. Dan and I have not recorded in six months Oi. and I have apparently forgotten how to podcast and <laughs> that might be apparent through this episode. So please be gentle with me, but we are here. This is our love letter to uh, one of the great actors of our time, uh, mostly known for cinema work, but we are going to talk today about Charles Bronson's television career. Um, that is the topic. And to do that, I brought on a guest um, in lieu of Nate, um, who I don't think is even a huge Charles Bronson fan. So it's probably better that we have our friend James Newton here. Hey, James, how are you doing? Hey, James. Thank you both. Absolutely delighted to be here. And uh I just want to say thank you before we go on that you've introduced me to these films and television programs that of Charles Bronson's that I've not seen before. So uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about it and giving my thoughts. Thank you very much. Yeah, you know what? I haven't seen any of these either. And mm. am I right, Dan, that you haven't seen them? Either? None of them. I, I didn't even know that the uh, the movie we're going to talk about was a thing that existed. I uh, I was very surprised when you sent it to us. Well, I'm happy to say, well, let me tell you what we're showing and then I'll tell you a little story. That's not that good. That'll take two sentences about. <laughs> Can't wait to hear it. So, so instead <laughs> of doing two TV movies, we decided to do two uh, shows that Bronson appeared in, two episodics um, and one TV movie. And I did that because he didn't do a huge amount of TV movies. And also because um, he did a lot of episodic work at the beginning of his career. So we decided to do Man with a Camera, the pilot episode, which is actually the only TV series that Charles Bronson actually starred in. I think it's like 29 episodes. Um, yeah. It didn't run yeah. for a super long time. Uh, it's in public domain, I think. It's available everywhere. So if you're listening and you want to watch it first, you can find it on YouTube or on Tubi, probably on Amazon, and I believe it's on DVD as well. Um, and we're also covering a One Step Beyond episode titled The Last Round, which I'm really excited about. Um, I'm a huge fan of One Step Beyond. If you want some background on that, I probably won't go too deep into it. Um, but we discussed uh, the host of One Step Beyond, John Newland, very early on in this podcast when we did... Um, I think we did Crawl Space and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark mm -hmm. together, and he directed yes. those. He would go on to become a really prominent television movie director and producer, one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, and he's the dapper host of One Step Beyond. And then we decided to go jump ahead towards the end of his career into the 90s, um, a little after his wife, Jill Ireland, died. Uh, he came back and he worked predominantly in TV after that. And in 1993, he made a movie called Donato and Daughter with um dana delaney and xander berkeley and so i've had this movie my stupid story it's not even a story i've had donato and daughter on vhs for years um under its vhs title dead to rights but i always thought it was associated with so at the very very end of charles bronson's career he did a trilogy of tv movies called family of cops and I assumed it was part of the Family of Cops series, but I just wasn't sure where it fell into that timeline. And because I hadn't seen the first Family of Cops yet, I hadn't watched it. Well, it turns out it's a totally separate thing. Although I guess it's a Family of Cops, actually, in the story. So that's kind of funny. But um, so we decided to just pay tribute to him because on November 3rd, um, our beloved Bronson uh, would have turned 100. And I'm actually surprised he didn't make it uh, because I've never seen anybody quite that buff before in my entire life um <laughs> and i guess it pays to work in coal mines at eight years old or whatever before we go into that i just wanted to usually we do the shameless self plug plugs at the end and i'll talk about some stuff i've worked on at the end we can talk about your guys's podcast when we get there but i wanted you guys have a lot of great stuff happening um and so i wanted to start with james i think last time you were on which was a while ago now uh you were in the process of finishing up your book the mad max effect but that's out now is that correct that's correct yeah it's out uh bloomsbury 
uh, in hardback. Um, so it's very, very dear. So if, you, if, if any listeners out there have access to a university library, you can order it through that and it may well be in your university library already. Other than that, it'll probably be uh, a few months before the, the, um, the paperback is out, which is obviously far more affordable. But yes, technically, the Mad Max effect <laughs> is out. <Yay. laughs> you can read it and uh, I don't have to do any more work on it. So uh, I know the feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Tell us a little bit about the book, just so people know what it, what they're. I mean, obviously, the title kind of gives it away, but give us a little bit of insight. Essentially, um, it's for a book series called uh, Global Exploitation Cinemas, and each of the books in the series, obviously, I'm just contributing one of the volumes, uh, is on a different chapter in exploitation film history, and I really wanted to look at the films that Mad Max inspired in the 1980s. Mm -hmm which I know that Daniel's a fan of as well. The, the book really is the narrative of what Mad Max was inspired by, what Mad Max ended up being, and then what Mad Max inspired. So it really looks at the post-apocalypse mm. road warrior style movies that were released after 1981 to about 1993. But it really tells the story of the, the way Mad Max developed aesthetically, how that emerged out of the biker movie, out of the revenge film, and how the Australian exploitation industry in the 1970s and how it spawned this transnational, international, huge amount of post-apocalypse road, road warrior movies that, that rip off and pay homage to Mad Max. So it, it's, uh, and I kind of centre it in, at the heart of this kind of tradition of exploitation culture that hasn't really been looked at too deeply in academic terms. Awesome. But there's been a lot of there's been a lot of fan stuff uh, around it and excellent stuff which I drew upon for for writing my book, um, but I wanted to just take a little bit more of an academic eye on that journey of the of the post apocalypse road warrior movie. That's so great, and you know I'm not as familiar with Mad Max as I should be, but I know I have seen Fury Road. I actually haven't seen the other three, which I felt horrible about. Um, <laughs> my mom was a huge fan of them because she was from Australia, so uh, I don't know how I particularly missed it, but I do know that that era of like that sort of it's and it's not even like so i could be wrong about this and in, in where i'm taking this but like like just when you're talking about aesthetics like it fed into everything like when you think about like how the warriors looked mm -hmm. you know even though that's not necessarily post-apocalyptic film although i guess it feels that way to some degree um it it feels like it fed off of this kind of uh, genre to me would you say that too james or yeah. do you think i'm totally yeah Absolutely. So that was the same year as the, as the first Mad Max. And I think what, what, mm. what I talk about a little bit in the book is the idea is it kind of just tapped into this post-punk zeitgeist mm. that was happening internationally. So it's not, I, I'm careful in the book to say that you know, Mad Max is not the, the, the centerpiece for all of this stuff. And if you take the Italian films that were made in the um, mid-80s, like Bronx Warriors and Bronx Warriors yeah, yeah. 2, yeah. they are riffing on both Mad Max, the Warriors, and Escape from New York, because so they're set in New York, right? So, so it's a mix of all those three things. So you, it's difficult to separate. And the way that the the, the aesthetics of Mad Max draws on this post-punk new wave style costuming and things like that, the Warriors is very much a part of that zeitgeist as well. So I talk a little bit about that, and the Warriors gets mentioned a, a couple of times. I thought I was making a total ass of myself. So really <laughs> no, no, you weren't. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> and um, and aside from that, um, you also, I think you had just finished Black Lizard Tales or it was going to be mm -hmm. screening at Cine Access. I can't remember, but you have a distributor for that now. Is that right? Yes, I do. That's in, uh, that, that should be coming out uh, on a Blu-ray release by Darkside Releasing. 
in early oh. 2022. Oh, so, um, congrats! That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's the that's so that's that, that that's quite exciting. Uh, and it was a long time ago I finished it, so, so I'll, I'll be um, I'll be looking forward to uh, looking at it again because I haven't watched it in a while. So yeah, that that should be Dark Side releasing. They they release um, it's, a, it's a boutique label. They release so many great low budget, micro budget horror films and, and and action films, including quite a lot that were made in the UK, uh, even though they're a, they're a Canadian company. And it's just really exciting to be to be to be part of to be part of that. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that release. Yeah, it should be hopefully January or early February next year. Great, that's fantastic, and it's a really great film. So I hope everybody's listening. Write that down somewhere and remember to check oh, it out. You. Yeah, thank I loved it. Much. It's it's got some really jarring imagery in it that I I, I remember watching it late at night. Um, I sat on my bed. I watched it on my computer. I had all the lights out, and <laughs> there was some definite like verbal gasps for me from some of the there's some really good scares in it it's a it's a terrific little uh, horror film i loved it so oh, thank um, you very much thank yeah you. sure and uh and um you have a new film is it right <laughs> well yeah in the summer I, I i wrote with my uh colleague of mine paul richards who's in black lizard tales you know i've been I've, I've collaborated with him loads and loads of times we kind of co-wrote this i don't even know how you begin to start really is it a horror film? Is it a comedy? I don't really know. But we, we, we wrote it in about three weeks and shot it in about, I think, eight days. And that's mm -hmm. a feature film that we that I'm just starting to edit now. And oh, uh, it's a kind of surreal nightmare scape comedy is the best way that I can describe it. If you ever invite me on again, I should be near enough finishing <laughs> and I'll be able to give you a better understanding of what the plot line is. In fact, I don't even want to tell you what the plot line is mm -hmm. at this at this point. Uh, um, but yeah it's exciting and it was really fun to make and um i'm looking forward to you know developing my style and and putting the finishing touches to that but i don't fully know how it's going to turn out right now but uh it's exciting it's exciting oh great well all your stuff is so good so uh we're looking forward to seeing that when you get it to the point where you're willing to show it to people you're, you're very um, kind thank you yeah no problem i love your stuff uh and then dan mm. Also, uh, a labor of love. This book is like how it's like three freaking pounds of three and awesome. a half pounds. Yeah, three and a <laughs> half pounds of awesome. I don't even know how many ounces that is. It's so many ounces. I can't even do the math. So like you wrote a book called From Beverly Hills to Hooterville, exploring mm -hmm. TV's Henningverse, 1962 to 1971. Nine brief years, three pounds of material. Yes. So this just came out, right? Just in the last month or so. It was, it right? yeah, in the past a month and a half or so. There, there was a brief period where I didn't tell anyone about it because I wanted to get a copy and I wanted to make sure it looked good. So, sure. yeah, so, so about a month, say about a month. So I know you've talked a little bit about it, but go ahead and tell everybody why there's 666 reviews and why we shouldn't be terrified to have that in the book. You should, you, you, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's probably someone who's going to see that there's 666 reviews and not buy it. But that's that's 222 reviews of Petticoat Junction. That's one third, exactly. 170 reviews of Green Acres and all the rest of Beverly Hillbillies. So it's all 666 episodes of those three shows from the first episode in broadcast order from beginning to end. And so we start with the Hillbillies in 1962 when the show immediately became the number one program in America for wow. two years till 1971 when Petticoat Junction was gone. All in the family had taken over the airwaves and Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres were looking a little strange. Although Green Acres was still funny to the end and Beverly Hillbillies, they just decided to get really weird in the last year of the show. 
and I just go through all 666 episodes and it's sort of a, it's a cumulative journey. And I bring that up because I've met a couple um, Henningverse gatekeepers online who uh, are nice. having some, tr- some trouble. They're generally white guys about 20, 25 years older than I am with strange questions and um, no patience. And uh, yeah, yeah, you begin at the very beginning, striking oil uh, and moving to Beverly Hills. And then you just proceed through episode by episode. And it's, it's cumulative. So you so you, uh, you you grab on all this information as you go. And then when all three shows are going at once and they're beginning to cross pollinate with one another, which wasn't something that was really done at all at that time, uh, it becomes more and more interesting and plus because it covered that time period it's such an interesting time period in american history yeah that they bring in you know i mean it's 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 um you know uh uh women's rights now granted that generally sometimes generates into very strange women's lib episodes but you get the beatniks at the beginning you get the hippies at the end you get all sorts of everything that happened at that time period is touched on it well not everything you know what i mean Uh, a lot of things um touched on at some point or other in one of the three shows and I bring them up and we develop the characters and, and uh, I give my own personal opinions on each of the episodes. And we sort of, um, it's a hell of a journey, actually. When I sit down with the book myself and flip through, it's 763 pages. Wow. And, and it's, um, and it's, uh, I, th- I think it's pretty darn good myself. I flipped it's through great. It because, because the way I wrote it and actually one of the reviews explains the way I wrote it because it was one of the reviews where, um, Beverly Hillbillies was like nine episodes into a storyline that should have been over already. And I had nothing to say. So the review is about, I take everyone aside and I show them, tell them how I write the book, just in, in, in lieu of having anything interesting to say about the episode. Um, and though, and I was just literally, I would sit down, I'd write, I watch three episodes a day, immediately write a page about each one. And I did that for 666 episodes and then combined them all, put them together. And that's this big book, which actually I had to adjust the margins because there, there's a weird thing with the formatting of the print book that a couple of the pages look slightly strange. I, I don't mind them, but you might think they look slightly strange. That's because if they weren't looking slightly strange, the book would have been over 800 pages yeah. and Am- Amazon doesn't allow books over 800 pages. <laughs> so I was, I was literally at the point where it was like, if you go any further, you can't, it has to be two volumes. And I said, I don't want it to, I wanted a volume you could pick up, read, and then hit someone with. And that's the book. It's perfect for muggings. Like yes. you want to protect yourself from a mugging. I, I find that it's really good. Put it um, in a bag and <laughs> it doesn't leave bruises. No, um, no. So <laughs> you can kill your spouse. So, um, <laughs> and that's a reference to a Las Vegas crime. I don't expect anybody to get. Um, anyway, what you made me think of briefly, and we'll jump into Jane, uh, to, I almost said James Bronson to Charles Bronson after this is <laughs> James, you are Charles today. You're Charles Bronson. So, um, uh, is you're talking about gatekeeping. And I think we talked about this on another episode, but there was this years ago and I'm still obsessed with it. They released Batman, all the episodes of Batman on DVD. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was a board and I don't even know how it came on this board because I love Batman, but I'm not like a fervent Batman fan. And I, yeah. it's not like I'd be on a Batman forum, but there was a Batman forum and some guy was claiming that it was not complete un, uncut episodes. I remember Be- that. Yes. Yeah. Do you remember this? Because when yes. he, he was a kid, yes. he saw an episode where Batman comes out of a manhole or something to yeah, that, oh, that That's right. That's right. No, it was, um, 
it was the the first episode is cut because I remember, and this was like 2014, because I remember when I saw this show on syndication back in the early 70s, there was a scene where the Riddler climbs out from a manhole. And so this is wrong. And people, and yeah. And And everybody was like, there's no scene like that ever. And you probably just remember it wrong. And he was insistent. And it was literally dozens of pages of people trying to tell this guy. (laughs) It's just a childhood memory. And this is not an a cut episode there's nothing's been taken out of it or not added back in or whatever yes and he was certain of it, it and was, it went hilarious. on for pages and i and maybe i somebody posted about it and i just had to check it out but i was obsessed with <laughs> this guy because i had somebody and i hope he doesn't listen to this because i'm not trying to pick on anybody but somebody contacted me on my uh made for tv mayhem page on facebook and they were like um you know you should be doing episodes of, of the uncut versions of these tv movies and i'm like what do you mean uncut and he's like well bad ronald's missing 16 minutes and i'm like no all tv movies were 74 minutes yeah in the 70s they weren't 90 minutes uh-huh. and but he was really like oh my god these yeah. are cut every everything from yeah. 1964 to 1979 <laughs> is cut and i'm furious about it and i was like no that they actually only ran 74 minutes yeah, in a 90 minute yeah. programming slot right yeah. and um he was just really upset so it happens that, that, that- yeah, that bat, that Batman guy. I remember one of his things was, whenever they asked him to prove it, he would say, "Well, why do I have to prove it? <laughs> Show me I'm wrong." And they're like, "Wait, so you're saying that 40 years ago you saw a three second shot of the Riddler, and now you insist that the whole set is <clears throat> because of that?" Yeah. And, and like, well, why why am I wrong? <laughs> why are you ganging up on me? And it was like because you're the only one saying it over and over again yeah i was like and i think we've talked about this before it keeps coming up but that's a good example of like what you can find on the internet sometimes people they're passionate and that's fine yes. but then there's like a there's like an extra level there where you're just yeah. like oh i gotta pull I, back I, can't. I didn't i didn't expect henning verse gatekeepers I, I really didn't and the first one that that came at me uh was like what <laughs> and it's clear it was clear that he loved the shows but hadn't seen them in years and so he he kept the, the, he was he I'll, I'll just say real quick he he brought up a specific episode from Petticoat Junction where they show at a local the Hooterville Theater they show the movie Wings uh, from 1927 and they have the stars of Wings on the episode and it came it was in between the episodes where Granny goes to Hooterville for the first time which is huge and the episode where Doctor Craig Kate Bradley's replacement shows up which mm. is huge. Yes. And he said to me, so uh, I was looking at you, the sample on Amazon and um, I, you only got one page on the uh, very iconic two-part uh, story about uh, wings where the characters show up. I, um, and he was angry. And I said, well, first off, it was one part, not two. And second, while it is a great episode, did you see the episodes on either side of it? And it took, it, it was one of those things where like, well, yes, of course, Granny showing up in Hooterville for the first time is important. But the Wings episode, I thought, who am I having a conversation with? Eventually, I just, <laughs> eventually, eventually, I just end up saying, are you going, have you bought the book? Is the book on the way? I'm not going to buy the book because of something like that. Okay, then the conversation's over. Yeah, I know. Go back, I've, put on BTV, do, do whatever. I've gotten two bad reviews for my book because um, I don't have every TV movie in it. Yes. And it's like, you know what? That's a five volume set. Yes, it's yes, literally yes. 5,000 movies and yes. plus. And yeah. um, and so whenever I see that, it's just like, okay, I don't know what to say. But yeah. I get like two-star reviews because of it. And it's just like, yeah, okay. 
It is what it is. Ah, uh, okay. And if Charles Bronson was here, he would be smacking uh, the shit out of all these people. He'd slap and their heads into the wall. He would. He would. And um, and I miss that he's not here to do that for us. And so I don't have a lot of notes. Surprisingly enough, there was very little information about Charles Bronson on any of these projects. So I don't have a lot of trivia, but I did write up a little mini biography. And I would recommend that anybody who is interested in Charles Bronson's life, at least up to 1974, um, should go on Roger Ebert's website. He did this really amazing interview with Charles Bronson in 74, uh, a little bit before uh, they shot Death Wish. And then, and then the second portion of the interview is on the set of Death Wish. And it's a pretty candid interview in that Roger Ebert had a very difficult time getting Charles Bronson to say much of anything. And, and then he kind of opened up at the end and, um, and it's a really interesting look at his life. He was very, um, I don't know how to describe Charles Bronson. I, maybe before we get started with the biography and I meant to tell you guys, I might ask this question is let's all go around real quick and talk about, uh, just real briefly what your favorite Charles Bronson movie would be. Um, because I know my favorite movie is death wish Four. It will always be Death Wish 4. And I know of all the Death Wishes and all the stuff that Charles Bronson starred in, why? But um, I've been thinking a lot about this. So Charles Bronson is new to me. Um, I fell in love with him uh, in the early 2000s because my grandfather got very ill and he was bedridden and um, he liked action movies. And my cousins and I would send him films. But the thing is, is that my cousins were sending him all just whatever. And it turned out he didn't like Westerns and they were constantly sending him Westerns, right? And I was sending him action movies, but I would watch them before I sent them. And so I had remembered he and I watching Death Wish 4 at some point uh, before he got sick, like the last third of it. And so I, that was the first one I picked up and I sat down to watch it and I loved it. I loved it. And it was really my reintroduction to that era of um, action films and all that stuff. It's great. A, Charles Bronson at that stage looked a little bit like my dad, so that was really nice. Um, also, I love it because it's a really fun entry into what is a pretty dark series. Um, and I love that he's like the bumbling vigilante. You know, he's always getting caught doing stuff. And there's this great scene where he's broken into somebody's apartment in a high rise. And the guy comes back to his apartment and he goes, what are you doing here? And Charles Bronson goes, making a sandwich. And then he throws the guy out the window, right? And it's brilliant. And, um, and so he has to kill everybody that, hey, what are you doing here? And he blows them up or something. And it's amazing. And, um, and so I've always had like a really soft spot for that film. And, um, watching with my grandpa because after my father died my grandfather was still alive and things were really difficult and so I went to go visit him and we would watch these movies together and so I, I started to get really into them and um and that's when I came to really develop uh, an affinity for Charles Bronson um that and he's been close to my heart ever since um James what is your favorite Charles Bronson movie well I think the best Charles Bronson film is is, is clearly Once Upon a Time in, in the West sure yeah. But at the same time, does that mean it's the best Charles Bronson film in inverted commas, right? Because I don't necessarily think of it as a Charles Bronson film. I think of it as a Sergio Leone film. So I think that's his probably his kind of like shining achievement in cinema. Um, and that film goes without saying. It's obviously a masterpiece. But uh, my favourite Charles Bronson film, as we would typically understand a Charles Bronson film, is probably 10 to Midnight. Oh, and I'd be watching these films when I was quite young, 12, 13, 14, 15, when they would be on the telly or you'd get them from the video shop, you know, through the, you know, the Canon films that he was making in the 1980s. And there was always, I, I, I don't know, you know, me and a couple of my friends would be the only ones who'd really like them. 
And I don't know whether I got a little bit snobby in my early kind of late teens, early 20s. And I just assumed that these films would have been trash that I liked when I was young. But I just kept, just keep returning to them. And I just think they're almost endlessly rewatchable. And um, now I'm quite happy to just admit that these are some of my favourite films, really. Um, and I judge a favourite film by how many times I want to watch it and how many times I do return and watch it. I, I love Ten to Midnight, I think, especially the uncut version. I think I, I, I think they did two versions of it, a slightly less explicit version and a, and, a, and, a, and a fully explicit version. And the explicit version is just astonishing. I mean, they really push it in terms of the content for the sex and the violence. And it's really, <laughs> such a kind of great presence. And around those, when I was just getting into cinema in the, the late 80s, those are the films that were being released in the video shop. They were the big releases, Assassination, Mm. Um, you know the Death Wish Four, that that type of thing, and you know I I, I love I love those Canon ones really, the ones he made in the in in the eighties for Canon, and those are the ones that really stick to me. And what I think of as Charles Bronson movies, but the best one is Once Upon a Time in the West. Mm. Yeah, I love Ten to Midnight. I just did a, a episode of uh, the History Continues where we discussed Ten to Midnight. I re-listened to it in case I had any tidbits I might want to use here, but I, I don't even think I make sense. So I'm really surprised anybody listened to it, but. Um, uh, I, we, I had to rewatch it and I hadn't seen it in a while. And one of the things that struck me about that film that I talked about on the podcast was that I, it is kind of a trashy exploitation film in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, I guess. Um, I hate to use the word trashy, but it also sort of in a way captures uh, women's lived experiences in that uh, after he gets arrested and everything happens and he's re-released into the public for a while, um, you know, he goes back to his old job where he's murdered one of the co-workers at the beginning of the mm. film. And the women are terrified of him, you know, and he comes into work every day. And I was just thinking about how in a, in a metaphorical way, it kind of captures this idea of uh, the kind of ways women have to always be on guard. And I think in a weird way, it actually captures a lot of stuff that women deal with, although that's not the main point of the film. Um, and interestingly enough, when I was watching Donato and Daughter, which we're going to talk about later, it reminded me of Ten to Midnight because of that father-daughter relationship. Um, and and yeah. I thought that that was kind of an interesting uh, similarity. They're not at all alike, uh, really, but uh, but for that it did. But I really like Ten to Midnight. Um, it's a really interesting film. I think that the guy, is his name Gene Davis, who plays the killer? Very brave actor. He's yeah, fantastic. He's, He's so good in it. He's so good in it. And Lisa Eilbacher, of course, who was in This House Possessed, my favorite TV movies in it. And and it's just, it's a really wonderful film. It's it's just really good. And I love when they turn the tables on him. And anyway, there's a lot to love about Ten to Midnight. Easily in my top five, probably, Charles Bronson movies that I've seen so far. Um, Dan, what's your favorite hey. Charles Bronson movie? Uh, my favorite, uh, well, I'm going to leave out The Great Escape. Um, and I'm going to say it's it's either one of two because um, Death Wish Three is a movie I like very very oh, much. so good yeah it's great and I, it's just it's, it's a cartoon that, it's that Michael Winter period was doing Scream for Help and the um, the Lady in Red or or whatever that other one was he made around there where he was just nuts but the the Charles Bronson film that I go back to the most is Breakheart Pass mm. which I think is um, based on an Alistair McLean novel and I think it's just the most sort of um, I love the setting. I love the story. It, it's one of those movies where the um, you, you see that if you have you ever seen the poster and I won't tell you what the poster is if you haven't seen it, but if you see the main poster for Breakheart Pass, you see it and you think, oh, that doesn't happen in the movie. 
and then you watch the movie and it happens and you're like whoa and i'm not going <laughs> to say what it is but it's an it's an crazy action scene involving a train and there's a moment in it that is immortalized in in the um artist rendering on the poster and you're like whoa and it's it's just so good it's so nicely i, I think because it was pop based on on the novel it's so nicely put together and structured and there's so many great actors in it and the the being on the train in the snow it's it's just like he's great in it starting off looking kind of like a skeezy slightly who is this creep kind of guy and then as the movie goes along and it becomes more like i'm the hero it's really uh it's really cool and uh, i think it's that's the one that that's the i love death witch three but breakheart pass is the one i can throw on at any time and it's only 90 minutes long, which is wonderful. You throw it on, have a good time, go on, go about your business. So that's that's my favorite. Yeah, that's the one I haven't seen. So I still have a lot of Bronson to discover, mm -hmm. which is another good thing. I'm really stuck in the canon kind of era. Oh, sure, of course. Those and are, yeah. and there's a lot I know that are blind spots. So I'm really glad we did this episode because, I, first of all, I didn't reckon, realize how much television he had done mm -hmm. prior to like going to Europe and, and making a name for himself there. But um uh, he's wonderful in everything that I've seen. And so I'm really looking forward to, to not revisiting, but discovering a lot of well, his may, work. May, may I, say, I just had a thought about Charles Bronson, why I was intrigued with him so much when I was a kid in the 80s. Because when I was young and I couldn't watch R-rated movies, all the other, in the first half of the 80s, all like the other action guys, like Stallone and Eastwood, they did PG and R-rated movies. But Bronson was the only one, I think, who did R-rated movies and who specifically, like with like The Evil That Men Do and Kinjate and Ten oh, to Midnight. Kinjate. You, know, you know, people, you know, uh, grow, my, 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 um, you know, my relatives would be like, oh, those are rough, Dan. You don't want to watch those. You know, stick with Sylvester Stallone and Victory and Pele playing soccer or something. Don't go. But that, that was the <laughs> thing when I was a kid, like Charles Bronson was the almost the um, the taboo one because all his films were rated R. And so if I wanted to see them, I had to either get special dispensation from my mother or make sure she wasn't in the house. So yeah, that was one of the things with Bronson. Yeah. And they're uh, they're kind of reprehensible films, right? Are they known yes. as reprehensible films? You have to, um, yes. it's nice being with people who, who have no problem defending them. And, yes, uh, and, I, and I've got no problem defending them, but yes, like exactly. they are known as like Death Wish Two, for example. They're in, oh my like, god, infamous yeah. movies, right? Infamous. Yeah. Uh, they are adult it, material. There's no question about it. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember very specifically my stepdad. May you rest in peace. He he passed a few months ago. Um, he used to show me anything that he had, but the evil that men do was one where he was like, I don't know about this one, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was, and I thought if he's like he showed me Fulci's Gates of Hell you know, Dawn of the Dead. And I was like, well, if he's not showing me that, I'm going to pass for now. And I didn't see it till years later. Yeah, he, he just, I don't know. Charles Bronson has an appeal too, because he really mm -hmm. stood out to me from the other guys. He was just, there's something really unique about Bronson. Um, I, but I think, you know, I could give a spiel, I guess, but I feel like it would be really superficial. I think when it comes down to it, it's that he reminds me so much of my father um, physically that, after my dad died, it became like a really like to watch a Bronson movie became like a really special thing for me. And then I just loved the films. And I don't know. I mean, you guys say it's interesting. You use the word reprehensible. And um, so like uh, and I'll talk about it at the end. But, you know, I just recently did a video essay for the Toolbox Murders and um, mm -hmm. that they just announced. So I can talk about it. And yeah. everybody I know when I talk about that movie to them, they're like, it's so trashy. And I'm like, that's a movie about a guy who lost his daughter. 
Mm-hmm. And then nobody knows how to respond to that. You know, yes. they're like, yeah. oh, no, it's about a guy who for 20 minutes kills lots of naked people. And it's like, well, but it's actually about why he did it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so like, I like, it's so like, I feel like I watch movies, maybe, I don't know what's a right or wrong way to watch a movie, but mm-hmm. I watch movies with this idea that there's humanity in all of them. So mm-hmm. I kind of find it where I can, mm-hmm. I guess. I, th- I think with Charles Bronson, though, like in the evil that men do, Kinjite, those sorts of films, he's up against these sort of things like a, like Clint Eastwood in Tightrope, like up against that really sort of dark, dark. Yeah. Um, and and his movies in the eighties, apart from some of the goofier ones, uh, seem to be, seem to be that. Whereas, like like I said, like Stallone would do a Rocky film, and oh, he sure, could show yeah. it to everyone. But then he'd do, um, I'm trying to think of an R-rated one. Was Nighthawks or Paradise House? Oh, sure. No, not Paradise. But you know what I mean. Well, Rambo was rated R. <laughs> Rambo, of course. Of course. Yeah, the Rambos. The Rambos. That's a sitcom I want to see. <laughs> um, but the uh, but yeah, with, with Bronson, it was almost always like that's like his his films are, they're going to be fun to watch, but they're they're ad- more adult. They're darker. They are, the they are, because Kinjite has, I mean, I haven't seen that in years, but it's got some crazy stuff in there. And, yeah. um, but all I remember is um, he made somebody eat their watch. And that's like one of my, <laughs> and I, I still, I still, whenever I'm watching something and it looks like it's going to get aggressive, I'm like, he's going to make that guy eat his watch. <laughs> so like, um, yeah, it, it, he's great. He's great. But like, he definitely has definite um, chapters in his career. Right. Mm -hmm. And so let's just talk a little bit about him. Um, So he was born on November 3rd, 1921, in what was called the Scoop Town section of Ehrenfield or Ehrenfeld, Pennsylvania, which is a coal mining town. Um, I I have been to Ehrenfeld. I made a pilgrimage there when I lived in Pittsburgh. It's 90 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. And um, it's now kind of like a retirement community. And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's impossible to get to the coal mines. I tried, but it gets really hinky and difficult to get into that section. Um, but I did walk around. It's a really small town. Um, I walked around it. I did take some photos with a very old camera. I don't know where those photos are. Um, and I had a sandwich. So it was great. And um, and I have to say it was really beautiful. And I ran into a woman who told me she her uncle knew Charles Bronson. Um, and that he would sometimes go to LA and stay with the Bronsons um, up until the end of his uncle's life. And so that was really cool. Um, she called him Charlie, by the way. Um, so, and his real name was Charles Buczynski. Um, He was the 11th of 15 children born to Lithuanian immigrants. And he began working the coal mines around the age of 16, which is where I think he got that amazing physique that we saw there in the 50s, in, well into his 70s, by the way. Um, he always looked really good. Uh, as an adult, he found himself working a lot of odd jobs, but it turned out he was really good at painting. And when we get to Donato and Daughter, um, I don't know if you guys remember the paintings that he did in um, as his character, but I think those might have been his paintings, but I have no proof of that. I don't know if you guys know anything about his art. but um, So he was in Atlantic City, and he met some members of a Pennsylvania acting troupe, and they asked him to do some scenery work for them, and then they let him act in exchange for it. And it turned out he really enjoyed it. Um, and so in 1949, he relocated to L.A. and began uh, to work on his acting skills at the Pasadena Playhouse. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, he did a little work in theater in New York as well. Uh, but in 1974, right before he made Death Wish, he had this to say about acting on stage. He said, quote, I have no interest in the stage anymore. From an audience point of view, it's old fashioned. The position I've been in for the last eight years, I have to think that way. I can't think of theater acting for one segment of the population in just one city. It's an ineffectual way of reaching people, end quote. I, was, I really like mm. that quote. Um, in the 1950s, he changed his name to Bronson because it was during the McCarthy era and he was worried that his name was too Russian. 
And that's why he changed it to Bronson, apparently at the behest of his manager. Uh, a really interesting tidbit I found out was that he used to be roommates with Jack Klugman when they lived in New York. They both worked for <laughs> oh, the Postal Service. Oh, the That's what he said. And he said that he said he was a total uh, slob. And, uh, and he was just like Oscar Madison. He said he was very well cast in that. But they used to work in the Postal Service together, and they worked in the Puerto Rican section of New York, um, mm. which I thought was really neat. Um, anyway, he started getting work, uh, but, you know, he had a really tough time kind of making a name for himself in the United States. He would end up making it big in France in the late 60s with a movie with a French title I'm not going to try to pronounce, but it translates into Farewell Friend. It was a heist flick uh, from France. And then, of course, a year later, he was in Once Upon a Time in the West, and he became this huge European star. Somewhere in 1971, he was voted as the most popular actor in the world. The credit I saw that given to was the Golden Globe, but I don't remember a Golden Globe award called most popular actor in the world. So I don't know. Um, of his international fame, Bronson told Roger Ebert um, in 1974, quote, one of the ironies is that I made my breakthrough in movies shot in Europe that the Japanese thought were American movies that the Americans thought were foreign, end quote. So he turned in a number of good roles in the United States, right? The Great Escape, Dirty Dozen, etc. But fame came to Bronson in his early 50s when he appeared in Michael Winner's controversial box office hit, Death Wish, um, which is an amazing film. Uh, critics, of course, hated the violence of that film, but Bronson, uh, in his very eloquent um, and uh, say less but mean more way of saying things, he said, we don't make movies for critics since they don't pay to see them anyhow. <laughs> um, Winner said, uh, Michael Winner, the director of Death Wish, um, he would go on to become a frequent collaborator with Bronson. Uh, they did The Mechanic, which is a movie we haven't mentioned that's amazing with Jan Michael Vincent. He did The Stone Killer and a few others. Um, and a little piece of trivia, Michael Winner used to date Jill Ireland, who would become Bronson's second oh. wife. But they dated before um, he knew Bronson. And he, if you read Michael Winner's biography, which is just as cuckoo as his films, <laughs> um, he talks about dating Jill Ireland. And it's, it's really interesting because one of the things he says is when they broke up, one of the last things he did was grope her breast. And I'm only bringing that up now because after he became friendly with her and Bronson as a married couple, you know, she was diagnosed with cancer. And he wrote this really eloquent, touching thing about her dying and Bronson dealing with it and Winner dealing with it. And and it reminded me of how he made his films because it goes from like this crazy, like, oh, and then I touched her breast, right? And then blah, blah, blah. And then he goes into this kind of poignant, section about her death and um and it really captures i think winner the person if anybody has a chance to read his biography it's really interesting um but he said this about bronson and his appeal he's winner said quote the key to bronson is the repressed fury the constant feeling that if you don't watch the screen every minute you'll miss the eruption but coupled with the intense masculine dynamism there's also a great tenderness in bronson women respond sexually to that combination of danger and tenderness in him so you know winner's trying to say that he had like this cross appeal which we never talk about but I do think women like Bronson. I know I do. Um, and in 1974, Bronson and his wife, Jill Ireland, actually wrote a screenplay that was supposed to be about, well, not about, but based on Bronson's experiences working in the coal mining industry. But it was actually a love story. It was titled The Dollar 98. Never got made. Um, sounds unfortunate. They were only at the beginning of writing it when um, he mentioned it in this interview with Roger Ebert. And then, of course, Jill Ireland died in 1990. Um, and Bronson kind of dropped out of sight. So he did two movies, and I don't know if he shot them before she died or right after. But um, in 91, two TV movies came out. Um, and I know one of them was, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. 
uh, I can't remember what the other film is. I think it was a TV movie. Um, and then he kind of disappeared until 1993 where he started working a little bit heavier um, in television. He would do The Sea Wolf for TNT, which is a movie he starred in with Christopher Reeve based on a, uh, a Jack London novel. And it's pretty good. I have it on VHS. Um, Christopher Reeve is excellent in it. Uh, he did not really work well with Charles Bronson. Um, he didn't say that they didn't get along, but he had a really difficult time because I guess Bronson like is like, you know what, I'm going to memorize my lines and I'm going to come in and do the film. And Christopher Reeve is like, I'm going to get into character. You know, he does all this stuff. He's He's got a different approach to it. And But the they play nemesises, right, or rivals or whatever in um, the movie. And I think it kind of worked really well because I think that they were both sort of put off by each other's sort of uh, approach to the roles. Um, anyway, uh, of his tough image, he would sometimes feed the press about uh, getting into fights and arrests, but there was never an arrest record of any sort that anybody could find. He also told people he fought in World War II, but he was actually stationed in Arizona, which he mentioned in an interview for Donato and Daughter. And then Bron Bronson's acting career, as we said, was bookmarked by his work in television. Um, he did a number of episodics. One of the things I didn't cover on this, uh, I chose One Step Beyond, but he was also in Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And he also did a really great Twilight Zone episode called Two with Elizabeth Montgomery. Yes. yes. Yeah, really good. But everybody talks about the Twilight Zone. Let's talk sure. about One Step Beyond, right? So <laughs> that's why I chose that. But he did all kinds of stuff. I think he was in The Virginian. He often mm -hmm. played um, yep. Indians and things, Mexicans, because he was ethnic. Um, and of course, he did the short-lived series Man with a Camera. Um, and uh, another TV movie... And when I this week when I was diving into my Bronson research, I put on Radon and Antebi, I think is how you pronounce it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it started and I was like, why didn't I pick this film? It's so good. But Bronson didn't show up till halfway into the movie. And and I don't think that it it really captures what I want to do here. But it's a very good movie and we're going to cover it on the show. Um, it's it's the same storyline that Delta Force is based off of. And I mm. had no idea until I watched it. And then I also thought about picking Act of Vengeance, but I think that was made for HBO. So I wanted to stick with network television. And that's all I have about his biography. So I think we can dive in. Man with a Camera. Starring Charles Bronson. Freelance photographer. Prize fighters and sports layouts are not my specialty. But this Joey Savoyan interested me. I had known him well as a nice kid on the east side. But growing up seemed to have turned him sour. Suddenly he was belting newspaper men around, smashing up cameras. Joey Savoyan had turned into a regular tiger, so they said. But I meant to have a picture or two of him with his claws out, if necessary. Charles Bronson plays uh, Mike uh, Kovac, who is a, uh, he was a World War II combat photographer, and now he is in the States trying to make his living uh, as a photographer. And this episode is about him trying to get photographs of a young boxer, whose name I don't remember. I'm going to call him the young boxer. And he is, um, who doesn't want pictures taken of himself. And he's about to, this boxer is about to fight the champ in a couple of weeks. And he's training at a camp in the middle of nowhere. He won't let the photographers in. Mike gets in briefly just because he knows the boxer. They grew up together, but it doesn't go well for Mike. Um, the young boxer's uh, girlfriend is also someone Mike knew from the old neighborhood growing up. I feel like it's Brooklyn, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, and she says to Mike, 
that the boxer is worried about something would might go to the training camp. He's staying the the boxer staying in a little cabin on this camp in the like in the middle of the night to talk to him. And Mike goes there to talk to him, and he discovers from the boxer that the first the last two fights or the last several fights he did were all fixed. He didn't know about it, but now his manager, the the champ's manager, the gangsters who are in charge of everything, want him to throw the fight with the champ. And Mike says that ain't happening. I'm going to get some pictures. We're going to save the day. And they set up a little trap to um, catch the uh, the bad guys in the uh, act of doing bad guy stuff. So they call, they call the gangsters and the champ and everyone over to the cabin. And they have Mike hidden away. And um, I'm going to leave it there because uh, is, does their plan work? Doesn't it work? Do they get in trouble? Does something sinister happen? I'm just going to, I'm just going to leave it right there. Boxers. <laughs> Boxers. Yeah, he kind of got stereotyped as a boxer. Now, I didn't read anything in his biography that he was a boxer, but I was pretty sure I'd heard somewhere that he used to box, not professionally. Betty, maybe, I but, bet he did. I'm, but was, semi-professionally. Yeah, I mean, his he looks good. Is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but uh, I love that you ended it where you ended it, because I'm going to have a lot to say about that scene, the okay. gotcha scene, because it's amazing. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so this is the only TV series that uh, was ever given to Charles Bronson. I feel like I'm going to, there's not a lot of background on it. I feel like I'm going to give all my background talking about it, but the press was kind of cruel to Charles Bronson. And I, I, I don't understand why exactly, but they, uh, they kept saying how ugly he was like in newspaper articles. Hmm. And, um, and they actually had a headline promoting the, an interview with him that said, homely hero will debut in man with a camera. Uh. And, and, you know, it, it was very upsetting. Um, so, but uh, I had never seen this before, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's it's only a thirty minute episode, and so it goes by at a clip. Um, I think what I like about it most is that I'm so used to Charles Bronson as kind of the older action hero in the canon films that to see him in something like this was really fun for me. It's a different kind of performance. Uh, it's really enjoyable. Um, I think my favorite of these three is going to be the one step beyond, uh, but I don't want to go too into that. But this is like a really fun spirited performance. Um, it's it's a clippy show. It moves really fast. It's kind of goofy. Um, at the time, ABC was a fledgling network. That's where it premiered. I should say this show aired in 1958, 1959. Um, and so we're going way back into his career. And um, ABC was the third uh, in, in the network's ratings, and they didn't have as much money to put towards a lot of their programming. So their shows were actually known for being more low budget mm -hmm. and uh, cause they had to fill the same amount of programming blocks, but they weren't getting the same amount of money from advertisers. So, um, so their shows were noticeably cheaper, apparently. To me, that's charming. I, I like the way they did it. It's, it's a very, um, it's not stagey at all, um, but it, it's definitely like there's three sets. Let's make the most of it. And before I go on and we talk more about the show, I was really charmed by it. I thought it was pretty good and I'd like to see more episodes. Um, James, what did you think of it? I, I enjoyed it. And I think I'm, a, I'm going back to the idea of him being a boxer. I, I'm, a, I'm a huge boxing fan, you see. So whenever I watch boxing scenes in films, I always like to see whether, whether the actor can move and whether he looks realistic. And I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen an actor look as comfortable in the ring as, as Bronson here, especially given that, again, it's a television episode. He hasn't had six months of, of training like, like like they would have if it was a big Hollywood movie, that type of thing. Right? He's clearly just been given the gloves and, and kind of get in. And uh, his footwork and the way he moves with the around with um, Tom Tom Laughlin, who's the, the guy playing the, the, the opposite boxer, uh, and the way he moves his 
puts his jab out. It's, it's, it's with pure ease, right? He's clearly comfortable in the ring sparring. So he's clearly done it. And I was really, really impressed with that stuff. Uh, and I love shows about boxing and films about boxing. And so I really, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's an odd program to watch as someone from, from England, right? Because, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm sure they, they might have been on television over here. We didn't really get anything like that. The formula is, uh, feels odd. It feels very American to us, right, to, to, to me. And clearly it is. I mean, that sounds like a really stupid thing to say, right? <laughs> An obvious, oh, obvious, obvious thing to say. But it's like nothing looks like that anymore, right? That Television doesn't look yeah. like that and, and ne- never really did to me growing up. Um, but I did enjoy it very, very much. And the, the, the performances I thought were good. And obviously Bron- Bronson's really good. Uh, Tom Laughlin's really good. I didn't get the name of the person who played the girlfriend, but I thought she was quite good. And I also like right down to there's a really funny scene after... Charles Bronson's been knocked out by the young boxer where the, the waiter comes in and is kind of like <laughs> taking the mickey out, you know, yeah. mocking Charles Bronson a bit. That's a really, really funny scene. Tell me barbecue sauce has some very good healing qualities. Or would you rather I get you an ice bag for your head? So even down to the, the supporting cast is really quite impressive. Yeah, you know, so I want to tell you the woman who plays Dolly is Ruta Lee. And uh, mm. she's a pretty well-known character actress. And when I was here in the States, and when I was watching it, I was thinking, God, she looks so familiar to me, but I'd never seen her that young before. So I had to look it up to, to realize. And then her IMDb picture is her oh, slightly older. And it was like, oh, yeah, I've seen her in a gazillion things. And I think she mostly does comedy. But here she's she's not the femme fatale, but she's the you know the boxer's love interest, and she's very much girl next doory in it, and um, she's great. Uh, she I really like that actress, and it was nice to see her in uh, such an early role. You were saying? I don't know what I was saying except that he's in trouble and he needs your help. Look, Joey phoned me today right after he'd seen you this afternoon, and he said it just occurred to him how you could help him out of all this mess he's in. He wants you to come out to the camp tonight after dark. That is, if you're willing. And he'll see to it that the rear door of his cabin is unlocked. What's all the cloak and dagger business? Mike, believe me, I don't know the details. All I know is that he begged me to have you come out tonight to bring your camera and just listen to what he has to say. I was shocked really how, for a pilot, it just kind of goes straight into the story. You don't really get yeah. much. You get a little bit of background on Kovac, and then before you know it, he's knocking some bloke down to get into a tent to take some photographs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's quite chatty in it, Bron- Bronson, yes. right? He's, more so than in, than you would expect him to be. His, his character's, you know, he's got a lot of kind of like a lot of talk, and but at the same time, really no nonsense. I, I, the only other thing I noticed, you, you'd, you'd know more about this, is that I think is it filmed. It's supposed to be set in New York, right? But it's it must be filmed in Hollywood, I would think. Yeah. Because yeah. like they're in the countryside, which looks like the Hollywood countryside, you know just that's, outside of Hollywood to me. That's a really good question. I do believe it was shot in Los Angeles, but um, yeah, okay, Los they Angeles. did do a lot of productions in New York back then too. Um, but I, I do, I'm pretty sure it's LA, um, but I'm, I'm actually not positive. No, I think I, I, I really liked it. There was a really good moment of kind of TV, uh, kind of TV writing and directing where he says to Tom Laughlin's character, the box, he says, uh, what are you going to do? Well, answer me. He doesn't even give the guy a chance to answer before. They've only got tw- what, 27 minutes or 24 yes. minutes or whatever. To, so they, 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 there's no time to hang around waiting for an answer. He, he demands an answer straight away. 
<laughs> That's how we do it here in the States. We don't we don't listen to anybody anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> um, Dan, what did you think? When you mentioned that ABC didn't have as much money as the other uh, networks, the thing I thought about this, and I had to look it up, I thought this was a syndicated show from the way it looked. It reminded me of a show like Soldiers of Fortune or Highway Patrolman or Whirly Birds. It seemed a little cheaper than, and in fact, it, it was. Um, but it does the good thing where it starts off in the big space outside, lots of extras, mm. the boxing ring and everything, and then gradually it gets into like smaller rooms. Yeah. So so you've seen the you you've seen the expanse, and now when it's like, okay, we spent all the budget there, throw the sets together, put us in the smaller spaces kind of thing. Um, and I I think it's a I think it's a it's a fun episode. As James mentioned, it's it's one of those shows. This was the way kind of a, quite a lot of the shows were back then, where the first episode, a uh, heck, I love Lucy does this. Just there's there's you just it throws you right in. There's no explanation. Like when I said that he was a World War II combat photographer, I don't think that's mentioned in the episode that I can remember. Maybe he says it. I forget, but I read that somewhere else. And they kind of and that's what the the way they would do it is is you would either get a show like say um. Uh, well, the, the second season, Man with the Camera on, it was on the same season as uh, Bourbon Street Beat. And Bourbon Street Beat, the first two episodes are set up episodes for the show, um, which is not something you normally saw because they wanted to get them in syndication and they wanted to show them in any order they could. So seeing the first episode of Man with the Camera, where you're just thrown right in, you don't know what's going on, that's very sort of standard. And what you, in, in my mind, like, it, it would be when I would sit down to watch the show, you would gradually glean what the character was and what they where they came from etc cetera, etc cetera, across the run of the show and then if i went back and watched the second time the second time i watched this episode things would mean a lot more to me because i'd be so familiar with the character um now not not to say that that's a bad thing or a good thing that's just the way they did stuff back then uh, i think but the, i think this is a pretty solid character it's nice to see um uh, mr bronson uh, uh, chatty and and I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to say anything about the ending just yet, but it, it is I, I uh, this is that that space in American television where apart from like the untouchables, most TV shows of this sort were a half an hour. But like I actually looked at the schedule. This this show ran opposite Phil Silvers, Sergeant Bilko and the M Squad, uh, which See, was now I don't have M Squad. I have. Uh, what's called the best of the post oh which was oh, an I... nbc special title valley of the blue mountain oh interesting okay yeah no i i i have m squad on mine but uh, hey maybe both of them it's Why not? possible it's <laughs> it's hard to know because um i look i used a newspaper to get oh, the yeah, listings okay. and and it's possible that i was looking it but i think i got the i think i got the show right i think oh, it said nbc but i'm not positive but they might have had m squad and then had a special that night well, possibly, yeah. I like the fact that it's going up against M Squad because M Squad, first off, is if you've ever seen Police Squad, then you've seen M Squad, but the silly version. <laughs> but but uh, M Squad and 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 Man with a Camera are the half hour type shows, which apart from Untouchables was generally the way it worked in the fifties. But following Man with a Camera was Seventy Seven Sunset Strip, That's right. which sort of set the template for detective shows into the mid to late sixties with all its spinoffs and all sorts of other shows and began making all the shows an hour long. So we're at an interesting point here where for the past four or five years, most adventure shows are a half an hour, but following the man with the camera is the show that will change everything to an hour. 
and I, I kind of I kind of like that because I love I love the half hour because they're snappy and they get in there they do their business and go but but the the the, the hours give you a little more um more time to coagulate with everyone sure, as it were. Yeah. So so but I think I think I think overall it's a fun episode but it's also one of those episodes where if you show someone randomly they might get to the end of it and think so what and then you have to show them another one and yeah. sort of get you might have to try to binge them on it just a little to um to to get more out of it because it's it's a very basic episode and I I feel like if you watch four or five more six more you you grow to understand the character and what it's doing a little more but but that's the way they did shows back then and we just we dealt with it not that i was alive in 1958 or 1959 but in my heart i am okay <laughs> <laughs> so that's me on that so one of the things i really like about man with a camera on a totally personal note is that he's sort of a detective by proxy right like murder she wrote like he's just this mm -hmm. guy who is supposed to be taking pictures for a newspaper and he ends up kind of uh becoming a detective in all these different mysteries, right? And that's the premise of the show. I, I really like the idea of people just sort of haphazardly falling into crimes. That's mm -hmm. always such a, and like on Heart to Heart, there's, how many people do you know that got murdered? Like Heart to Heart and Matt Houston, all their murders were based off people they knew. Yeah. Like Matt Houston's like, that's my cousin, or that's a friend, or that's a friend of my cousin's, right? Every episode, every episode. And it's like, how many people do you know that get murdered, right? And wherever Jessica Fletcher goes, there's a murder and you're like, maybe she's killing everybody. You're not quite mm. sure, right? So, um, but yeah, I love when people just kind of haphazardly fall into these sort of mysteries. And and that was one of the things about the show that really delighted me. And the other thing that I really liked was, as you both had said, he talks a lot in it and he's kind of animated and it's a little different than mm -hmm. the strong silent type that we I kind of came to know him as in the other, um, like the Golden Globus movies he was doing and stuff. And so it's it was like kind of a new view of Bronson for me. I mean, I think he's famous for not talking, right? Like he's um once upon a time in the West, that's a pretty pretty much like dialogue list. Is that a word? Role, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah, that is close enough. Yeah. yeah and so and yeah. so I, I think that's how we interpret him and how he kind of personified himself, right? Like with Roger Ebert, he had a really hard time getting him to talk. Mm -hmm. And um and he was like that in a lot of um interviews. And actually I have a friend who met Charles Bronson twice and the first time you met him Bronson didn't want to have anything to do with him. He just couldn't, he's just like, I can't even talk to you right now. I don't even want to be in the same room with you. And then he met him sometime later and they ended up having an entire conversation about like all these films that Bronson had made. And it's really interesting. Like as a person, he, Dana Delaney said, and I have this quote in here, he's a tough nut to crack. Mm -hmm. And, and I kind of think that's how maybe we all see him. And so to see him in a different way, was um was really great but one of the other things that i love so so uh, you went through the story pretty well but i want to go up to the climax here so he's yeah. got this boxer friend that's doing something that's mysterious and he has to figure out why things are the way they are and why he's become so so brutish and and tough and like hard to get to and and reach and get a photo of and do all this stuff and we find out that he's being uh, blackmailed and he's supposed to like take a dive at this next fight and all the fights he's been doing he's been um basically he didn't realize but the other boxers had to take the dive and that was kind of building him up and then they were so that the betting odds would be in his favor but then when he loses um 
the winner, you know, whoever voted or voted, whoever bet on that guy will end up making a shit ton of money, right? So, and of course, this guy's got ethics and he's really struggling with it. So Bronson's or Kovacs is like, okay, let's figure this out. I'll take a picture of you with no context talking to somebody that nobody knows and we'll somehow get this whole thing settled. And so, so they're like, okay. And so he, he turns on all the lights. The scene is so good. He turns on all the lights and he gets, but he doesn't even get into a closet. He gets behind this like little partition where you get dressed mm -hmm. like behind it. And then he's somehow going to get the photo of the guy, but he hooks up this giant flash mm. on top of his camera. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's going to clue him in that somebody else is in the room. And I remember even thinking, what if he had a Polaroid? He'd be like, whoosh. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been near a Polaroid, but they're really loud. And so, so he's setting up with this giant flash behind this like thing that's not even rooted into the ground. And he's like, all right, I'm going to take a photo of you. So then the bad guy comes in looking very much like Captain Steubing in sunglasses. I th actually thought it was Gavin McCloud because he used to play heavies on a lot of episodic television. Mm. And he's like, all right, all right, boxer guy, we're going to, you know, practice the fight here and and then you'll know what to do and and Kovacs is behind this partition and when he takes the photo he knocks it over but literally in a split second he's actually jumped through a closed window yes with his camera <laughs> his yeah. camera and he smashes it and he's off and it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen because he's like lightning like I, I don't even remember seeing him leave the partition and go yes. through the window it's so beautifully shot and then he's out into the woods and then he gets caught and then they have to go back and there's another confrontation. But that scene for me made the whole show so amazing. And one thing that Bronson said in interviews was he actually didn't like the pilot script at all. He didn't think that there was enough action in it. And he said that he wanted a show that had action. He said, I'm not going to walk up to a mark and just say some lines. I want some action in it. He actually said that. He said that the later scripts got much better. So I think that they must have incorporated a lot more of that element into it. And I haven't gotten past the pilot, so I don't know. Um, I think for a first episode, it's a lot of fun. And considering all the kind of gumshoey type shows that were so popular back then, you know, I don't know how to rank them because I'm not as familiar with them as I should be. But I think in terms of just entertainment value, I think this one, like I said, it's just a clip. It just mm -hmm. moves so fast. Yeah. And and I love that it's just got all this energy in it. And um, and so that's one of the things that I really loved about the show. And I was just curious what you guys thought about this kind of end of it. Like, did you think that, um, I mean, the story, I don't know exactly what kind of question I'm asking to lead you guys into a discussion, but, <laughs> but what do you think about the way it goes from point A to point B? Do you have any thoughts on that, either one of you? You, you know, it's, it's clearly of its time, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So like you're looking at this, I mean, you know, you, you, I never really saw these these type of shows. It feels quite stagey, um, mm -hmm. and I suppose a lot of it depends on whether you like that type of thing. I mean, it is you're right. It is an odd final scene to have him kind of sneaking around um, behind this <laughs> this dresser with this camera, with this guy who doesn't take his sunglasses off, trying to take <laughs> this as you say, contextless photograph. But you know, you're watching these actors who you know from other 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 programs and other films and. And and I and I, I, really, I I I enjoyed it. I knew what type of thing it was. I quite liked the the girlfriend coming and saving the day by the rock. Yeah, 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 right. distracting yeah. the bad guys and stuff. And then there's a, lot of, a brief little shootout, so a, a, a punch up between the two boxers. They do actually get a, get to have a fight, 
Um, it only lasts two punches between the, the before the champs knocked out. But uh, <laughs> yes. I thought it was, it was it was fun. And the way that the, the bad guys they just kind of stand there passively while they've got this one gun trained on them, rather than <laughs> rather than fight or run or do, do, do anything to get. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to go to prison for a long time, and they just kind of like take it. And then it just then it obviously just finishes as, as soon as he kind of calls the police. But you know, I enjoyed it. It wasn't out of the three films, the three programs we're going to look at today. It was my least favorite. Let's mm. put it that way. I'm, I might say that too, but that doesn't mean it's not good. It's just, yeah. um, I agree. I, I really think it's a, if you were to watch, like I said, if you watch a brace of these um, and then go back to this one, you'd be like, oh yeah. When you're more familiar with the character, you're more familiar with the way um, I was surprised that this was a pilot. I, I thought of a couple random shows like Monster Squad and Wizards and Warriors, which aren't helpful mm. at all right here, but were shows where they would shoot a pilot that was kind of like a first episode, but then save it for later. And the first episode would be like the sixth or seventh. Yeah. And, and so that's what this felt like to me. And the fact that it is the pilot feels like, wow, they're really, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised like this aired before 77 Sunset Strip, which was like the breakout show from this season of American TV. So I'm surprised that it didn't do better because the next season, it ended up at like 10.30 at night on a Monday, which seems like a horrible time. I don't care when, when what decade you're in, but 1959, 10.30 on a Monday night, I think everyone was sleepy. I would think would, so, yeah. Yeah, you're not up for the Bronson action, the Bronson chest to come at you oiled, you know, That's, at 10.30 that, at night. That was the highlight of the pilot, right? They were like, we don't even need a story. Exactly. Just take off <laughs> your shirt Exactly. Box. Because people are going to be thinking about that the rest of the episode, and then it'll be over. I do love the way it ends where it, it, it's very much like a 30s or 40s universal horror film. There's no goofing around. Give me the police, and it's over. There's yeah. no final. There's no. But, there's no final scene. There's no. It's just yeah, we're done. But to go back real quickly to him taking off his shirt and boxing, and no, I'm not going to get lewd about it. But he didn't look like a lot of men in the 50s looked in these shows. That, they looked like, weirder. Yeah. Well, they weren't. They weren't as in shape. Now yeah. that's regular. We see that everywhere. And if you're not in shape, now you stand out. But in everybody had these kind of like Ward Cleaver, just regular guy <laughs> yes. physiques. Like there's nothing wrong with Ward Cleaver, right? Yeah, that the Leave it to Beaver boxing episode is one of my favorites. Yeah, well, I mean I mean I guess it would be like comparing Ward Cleaver to, to um Wally. Right. Because Wally was <laughs> yeah. very athletic, right? Yes. Yeah. And and yeah. so like in and, and and so Wally was not the norm for TV in the fifties. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the men just looked more like just your everyday guys. Yeah. And and um and Wally looked more like like what the actors look like today, I think. Mm -hmm. Um and so it was kind of interesting. So he he stood out in a lot of ways. A because you didn't see that many people who weren't white leading TV shows, mm -hmm. right? And and also people built quite like that. You just didn't see that to my memory on tv yeah. or men even really taking off their shirts mm -hmm. like i don't remember mm -hmm. that being a big thing like in father knows best there weren't a lot of uh, bare bare chested episodes with him no, teaching the I'm, kids lessons i'm super happy about robert young too. yeah yeah i might be okay with that part but <laughs> but like so so like there's some interesting things in the show that that feel unique to me for the era and also james i didn't even think about the girlfriend saving the day but she really does and that she does yeah i can't believe that that didn't even stand out to me i feel like such a non-feminist now but like <laughs> That's kind of an important thing and, and, that's that you did not see that in TV back then. And it's so it's so wonderfully done too because it's like she looks in, sees trouble, throws a rock through, and they <laughs> they say like, "What made you do that?" She was like, "Well, I, I looked through the window and saw you guys in trouble, so I threw a rock." 
what, why would I? It's, yeah, it's why would I help thing. you? Yeah, yeah, and so it's it's kind of cool. Like this now, the more I'm thinking about it, I mean, this episode. So I love having these discussions. It's doing a lot more than on the, than it looks like on the surface, right? Yes. So yes. and that's kind of really nice and and really great to think of a Lithuanian heading a TV show, which I didn't even <laughs> think about either. Um, mm -hmm. But so this is a really fun one. Um, I don't know that there's much more to say about it, though. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, that was it for me. Really. No, no, I think I'm good. OK, so I kind of gave all the background already in it. So Dan, already you said what it ran against. Oh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. It didn't run against. I was missing out my shows. It ran against something called Cavalcade of Sports I have. I didn't oh. have M Squad. I had Cavalcade of Sports. I'm going to look again. Yeah, well, it's from a newspaper ad, so I don't know if they that night they didn't show it or I, or it's I didn't get the network correct. I can't remember, but it's either M Squad or Cavalcade of Sports. Mm -hmm. um, and I already kind of did all the trivia. A people thought he was ugly, which is ridiculous. Mm. Um, B uh, he wasn't as happy with the pilot as he was with the rest of the series. And um, oh, also, so to prepare for the role, uh, Bronson actually went around and he contacted several of the country's top photographers, and he asked them about their equipment. Because mm. apparently every episode they use some kind of what would be considered brand new technology back then oh, nice. um, and they incorporated it into the show. So he wanted to make sure that he really understood the camera uh, technology of the day. So he actually talked to a lot of photographers to, to get that part of the research done, which I thought was really interesting. I didn't even think mm. of that when I was watching it. This is a small storeroom of the Lost Property Department of the London County Council. There are many such rooms, but they're rarely visited anymore because the property stored dates back to the war. Property found on the streets or in the bombed out buildings, all waiting for claimants who never appear. Like this cheap copy of Venus to Milo, meant to stand in some garden. The ages have claimed her arms, the war claimed her head. Like on what mantelpiece do you suppose this old clock was standing when the bomb hit? Calmly ticking. Time stopped for it at 7.36 a.m. or p.m. What difference does it make? Baby strollers, cartons full of things, all tagged with the place and date of their destruction. The East End Arena, September 17th, 1944. Everything in this room could tell a hundred stories. But this boxing glove was involved in a most unusual occurrence. When, on September 17, 1944, that dark and heavy curtain to the world beyond our five senses, the psychic world, was lifted for a moment. Let's move on then to One Step Beyond, which I'm really excited to talk about. He plays a boxer, uh, Mr. Bronson, a, bron uh, a boxer named Yank. Um, keep it down, keep quiet. Um, and he plays a boxer named Yank who is boxing in September 1944 uh, during the uh, continuing London Blitz. And he is at, the, they're at the East End something or other, East End Arena, something like that, I'm, I'm sorry. And he is all set to box um, some guy, a Br British guy. And he's there with his, um, his manager. And we learn very quickly uh, that, that Yank is um, maybe not in the best of health. He may have been in some sort of accident a few years ago and possibly shouldn't be boxing. Uh, um, but but he, he is still going to box because he says that's the only thing he knows how to do. The, the manager for the, uh, the opposing boxer shows up and we, we learn the story of a gentleman named Paddy, P-A-D-D-Y, 
who was a boxer who um who used to box around here a lot and he he died one night uh another another boxer was up uh, uh in in the ring and he swore halfway halfway through halfway through the the fight he swore that he saw patty sitting his ghost sitting in the uh sitting in the chairs looking at him kind of like shaking his head and going like no 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 and the boxer thought well he's telling me his ghost is telling me not to box but he continued to box and got killed so patty is this kind of legend hanging over this this boxing ring um if you see him you're going to die the the uh, the opposing manager kind of puts this into Yank's head, and then Yank's manager tells him the rest of the story, but says it's all baloney. Uh oh, though, Yank might believe it, and uh oh, might Yank see Patty a little later on, or is it Patty, or is it something more sinister, or what the heck is going on? No, Yank, no. <laughs> Uh, so this is this it's it's basically about is there a ghost in the theater or not and do you see is he a para is he like a harbinger of death and i'll just leave it at that so this aired in 1961 so this is just three years after um man with a camera and he was doing a lot of episodics at this point interestingly enough two nights before this episode of one step beyond aired bronson played a boxer in an episode of the General Electric Theater titled Memory in White, and um, he was nominated for an Emmy wow. for that role. Now, I haven't seen this episode, um, and I don't think I could find it on YouTube, but I, I don't remember. I think I looked at it last minute because I didn't realize he did those so close together. Um, so being a boxer, playing a boxer, he kind of got stereotyped, it looks like, because of that, I think, his physique, um, for sure. And maybe he was really a boxer, like James noted. Um, he looked like he knew what he was doing. I'm sure I saw this when I was a kid because I'm a really big uh, One Step Beyond fan. Um, when I was growing up, uh, I think we got all the shows. I think we got Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and One Step Beyond, but this is the only one I remember from my childhood. And I don't want to say it's better than the Twilight Zone, but if I could champion it for a minute, it premiered six months approximately before the Twilight Zone. And if I'm correct, Rod Serling approached John Newland um, to let him know that he was going to be doing a similar show and they were friends and there's actually a piece of trivia I'll get into at, when we're done talking about this where the two shows intersect in this episode um, mm. so mm. Uh, this show the premise of the show according to John Newland and Merwin Gerard who was the creator of it was that they were going to take quote-unquote actual ghost stories so stories that already existed in the world and then make episodes out of them so the premise of their show was different than the twilight zone a it had it didn't really have any social commentary in it um and and that show was heavily steeped in that that was the whole point of that show um but also um they were to, they were basing everything on this quote-unquote fact right like this supposedly really happened and that was supposed to give it sort of this underlying sense of eeriness to the stories that they were bringing to the series. Um, it's a very low budget show again. I think it shows, particularly in this episode, talk about stagey and very small sets. It's very economical the way it's put together. But um, for me, 
John Newland, and I feel like I could go on about John Newland forever and I won't, um, is such an incredible person. And I've always loved him since I was a kid. He was this dapper host of this great show. And then when the show was revived in the 70s, he came back and hosted it then. He may have directed some episodes. I think he might have even directed this episode of One Step Beyond. And um, and then he would go on to create uh, two different production companies that after he did uh, some TV movies, he, of course he did Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which I mentioned earlier, and Crawl Space. And then he formed a production company and he produced a lot of very domestic set dramas that are fantastic. Um, a Sensitive Passionate Man was um, David Jansen, who was nominated for an Emmy about an alcoholic. He did one called Overboard um, about a couple that are breaking up that are on a ship together. And then he did my favorite, which is The Suicide's Wife, um, which is about a woman whose husband commits suicide and the whole movie is about her trying to figure out why and it's it's very it's a it's his most flawed film but it's his most raw and most moving and they all start angie dickinson and so he's this incredible filmmaker and i kind of think he knew what he was doing and one of the things i liked about uh this particular episode of one step beyond is the way it lays out the story you're a fool to be fighting you know it's a nasty scar you're quite sure you're all right why don't you mind your own business of course he's all right well i hope so I really hope so. Why don't you get out of here? All right, you time to go and find my tiger. <laughs> we don't worry about accidents here, do we, mighty? Not with old Paddy Terhoon about. Who's Paddy Terhoon? Oh, he's dead. In a manner of speaking. The rival boxing manager comes in and kind of drops this hint about Patty, but then Yank's manager is giving him that massage and he's telling him this whole story and the way that he's just going around Bronson and kind of dropping like the story is really well done for me. I thought it built up the tension of the ghost story for me. And then we see Patty and it's just this very quick kind of awkward cut because the, the, the camera shot itself is pretty good, but he's wearing this sweater that says Patty on it, just in case you weren't sure who he was. And it's ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's like it's, a Ralph Mouth. Yeah, it's yeah, ridiculous. Or yeah, Laverne yeah. with the big L. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, it's just ridiculous. But and it makes you laugh and maybe it breaks a little of the tension. But but overall, I felt like this, this episode had a great sense of dread. But what I liked most about it personally, and it's okay if anybody disagrees, um, is that for me, of the three things that we watched for this episode, Bronson is really freaking good in this. He's so good. I've not really seen him in like a horror story, even though I know it's like light. He's so animated in it. And, and there's, it's just a different performance than what I'm used to seeing. And I really liked it. And for me, that was the highlight of this. And that, and we'll talk about that what the fuck ending it was amazing too um but like uh, i thought this was really good and i love all the one step beyonds i will find something about all of them to love but this is one that um i really was taken with um i thought it was quite good uh dan what did you think well my uh, my secret shame is that i'd never seen one step beyond <gasps> i know yeah. i was a twilight zone kid and uh, alfred hitchcock and sure. um somewhat outer limits and so i i just never watched one step beyond although Although I've heard wonderful things about it, I, I've just never experienced it. I'm a huge horror, eerie, weird anthology fan, but I think I think from sort of the '50s and before that, I'm more of a radio anthology mm -hmm. fan, like a Lights Out, Inner Sanctum, sure. Witch's Tale, Suspense, The Whistler. Uh, just because, like in Lights Out, you can get really gross, and you can go to weird places, but because it's audio, uh, you're okay. Whereas I feel like I enjoy this one step beyond 
um, quite a bit, actually. And you're right. It's funny to see Bronson as sort of like, like right off the bat when um, you, you learn that he hasn't gone to see this doctor for a physical and you're thinking, okay, he's not, he's not well. And he's, he's more, I, I don't want to say vulnerable because most of the time he's just in these little shorts and it looks like he could pick me up and throw me through a window. So I, that's not quite the word, but he's more um, like, there's something about the way his, <laughs> the way his manager tells him the story about Patty and he just really gets into it. Like, yeah. And they, and he said he died because he saw the ghost of Patty and they say, if they ever see him and you're boxing, you're going to die too. And then he flips Charles Bronson over. And Bronson is looking at him and the manager's like, but it's all baloney. It's <laughs> nonsense. Don't well, worry about it. It's like, Dan, but I, th I think you, you got to do that with an accent. Oh, oh no, not with, not, not with James on here. No, yeah, we'll give James the script and we'll have him read it. <laughs> I wouldn't know. Um, but uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's a, um, it actually, when I got to the end of it, I thought I need to watch more one step beyond. Because I think I think it's a, I think it's a solid anthology episode, and it clearly it's clearly taking place on a soundstage. When they walk, when they 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 take the sign off, the all clear sign is revealed. That's clearly the answer to entrance to a soundstage. And when Charles Bronson is is walk Yank is walking down the um, hallway to his his room, and he's like, oh god, I forget how he describes it, but he's like, yeah, that's that's a that's just a corner of a soundstage and they're acting like it's a, it's a boxing, you know, right. boxers <laughs> dressing. What is it? What do boxers sit in? Not dressing rooms. What, what am I thinking? What, whatever sort of room it is. Boxers room. Sit in. But it's, room. Yes. Yes. And so they clear, clearly it's on a soundstage, but I was surprised that there were so many people watching the match. I thought it was going to be one of those where, um, well, I guess they have to have Patty in the stands, but I thought it was going to be one of those where maybe you see a brief shot of the stands mm -hmm. and then the rest of it is like all darkness and then around. you just hear this like this like audience that you know is just yes. canned, right? Yes, yes, yeah. that's what I thought it was going to be. But but overall, I love a horror anthology. I love a weird anthology, and I thought this was a fun episode. It's not like if you're looking for like Freddy's Nightmares or something like that, this ain't it. But this is this is sort of a charming. It, it's eerie. Um, yeah. It's a very eerie episode, and little. And if you watch it a second time, there are a lot of wonderful, just like dropped in little moments that you may not have caught the first time that leads you to the ending and then the ending has a great moment in it which i won't say and then it happens and you're like oh nice and watching john newland walk amongst the um uh, all those those picking up all those items and stuff like that it's almost like um unlike say rod serling who who um who always looked a little always was smoking and always was nervous because he was um john newland has more of a feeling like look at all this crazy stuff Every one of these has a ghost story behind it. Ah, <laughs> you feel like, oh, John, are you nuts? No, he, no, he wasn't. No. He's a he's a be still my heart. I love him. I <laughs> he's love great. him. He's I, great. I'm glad I watched it. Yeah. And I want to mention briefly because it's on my mind. So I mentioned earlier that um, Charles Bronson and Elizabeth Montgomery did a Twilight Zone episode title two. It's pretty well known. But Elizabeth Montgomery is in one of the most famous episodes of One Step Beyond as well. Um, and I can't remember the name of it, but you can go on her IMDb page and look it up, but it's really good. Um, it's another ghost story, uh, and she's great in it. And, um, and so in, just in case anybody's interested in checking out more One Step Beyonds, it's one of the most famous ones. Um, but anyway, James, what did you think of this? Yeah, I, I agree with this, the, the, the pair of you. I, I, I thought this was fun. I liked it. I, I didn't know One Step Beyond. I'm you know, glad you introduced me to it. And I, 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 I did respond well to this one. I thought it was, I thought it was fun. 
you know where it's going right from the start. There's a kind of comfort in that, but it has got some affecting scenes, right? So even though it's old fashioned, even though it's a bit, it's very stagey in some parts, it's still, it's still, it's still effective. You know, it still gets to you. And so I'll, I'll just kind of read off my, my, my notes really, because I like the, the England aspect, the fact that it's set in London. I'm not from London, but the fact that it's, it's, it's set in England and Britain was, was, was a fun thing. I especially liked it when, uh, uh, Charles Bronson turned down the the, the, the fish and chips in oh, the first right. scene. <laughs> like, uh, you know, didn't 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 want anything to do with that. There's a mention of the city of Birmingham as well, which uh, must be quite rare. In I mean, to mention Birmingham even in British television programs is quite rare. So in American television shows, it must be extremely rare. That's a city where I'm close to where I was brought up. Birmingham, by the way, is the setting for Peaky Blinders. Do you have that over there? I've heard of it, but I've heard of it. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's kind of a big BBC show, and I think some mm-hmm. some people watch it over there. But that it's got like uh, Killian Murphy in it, and oh, uh, sure. Tom Tom Hardy's been in it, and you know, like loads of big stars. Well, this I thought it was really good. I thought the um, I like again, I like the boxing stuff. Yeah, it's set in the the, the old East End Arena, which mm. could be I don't know whether that was a real place, but there's a, a very famous boxing venue in the East End called uh, the, the York Hall in Bethnal Green. So it could be a, a reference to that. Uh, so it seemed to have some kind of knowledge of boxing history. The boxing scene, you, you're right. The talking scenes are very stagey, extremely stagey. Uh, but the boxing scenes are actually very, very, very well done. They're, they're really realistic. There's got so lots of kind of scuffing shots. Then They're not really over the top. They're clearly um, hitting each other, even if not terribly hard. Uh, both guys can clearly box and can move together. There's a couple of really great camera angles. One, a really low camera angle that must be placed right by their feet, looking up into the two boxers, slugging it out. And then it's got a, a kind of reverse of that, which is an, a, a, an overhead shot above the ring. Uh, I don't know if you remember that shot, but really good, really sophisticated, really fantastic uh, shot selection. And you're right about the crowd, and there's a really wonderful shot of two old ladies yes I remember smoking that. And reading. they were so <laughs> great yeah. <laughs> yeah very 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 funny i really i really like i really like that stuff and uh all excellent Bron- bronson's excellent again he's clearly the guest star in this isn't he because there's, there's whole scenes where he's not saying anything he's clearly that you know he's clearly a, a, an act of a hire here rather than the the, the, the main star oh yeah i yeah. mean there's long scenes where the the managers are talking to each other yeah, but there's no is great. Yeah. There's no star I guess of of a one step beyond. I mean, I guess there are, but uh per episode, but because it was like an anthology show, I guess they're like ensembles sometimes too, maybe. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Absolutely. Nick, that that comes across. I mean, he, he's he's playing um at times it felt like he was a supporting role rather than the rather than the main star of the episode. Um but it's a good very physical performance. There's a great moment where he he wrestles the the, the the opposite his opposition manager's hand away from his arm oh, yes. and uh really shows a kind of really strong physicality into that what you were mentioning about the the explosion waiting to happen he's not you know he's, he's contained and then all of a sudden he shows this very short flash of anger and and physical dominance and it's a really strong performance by bronson actually i thought it was great and the only thing i would say about about the the ending was the when i mean it's it, it's it's really i mean it's funny but also affecting because you know it's set during the blitz and and uh, you know 
that caused a lot of damage and a lot of people died that way as well. So it's got a re- it had power to it. Yeah. Even though it was uh, obviously a little bit silly as well, but um, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it all the way through. That ending, so like they're all standing around, and if you haven't seen this episode, skip past this part or, and go watch it because it's just you. I don't even know what is happening. So when you James, you're like, oh yeah, this there's comfort there because you know what's going to happen. But did you really know that they were all going to be huddled there in that boxing ring and they're going to be like? Well, I saw Patty, and I saw Patty too. Well, I never saw Patty. No, no, no. I, I think, I think <laughs> That's exactly what happened. <laughs> I think what I more I expected was the the the, ha- the haunted, you know, seeing the the spectre of a of, a, oh, of another sure. dead dead boxer. I, yeah, no, you've got me on that one. I didn't expect the very very. Because <laughs> I I just went what just like that. My, yeah. I literally <laughs> went just like that, and then I was like. What? I can't believe that that just happened. And then John Lennon shows up again and he's like, I, I you see Patty. I, 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 lo- I love that moment where, uh, yeah, the one guy goes, I don't see him. And yeah. I, because for, for a second, I thought, wait a minute, did I miss something? Why is one person not seeing him? And then, and then I was like, oh, that's right. Okay. Yes. All right. I thought, so, so let's work that out. Mr. John Newland blowing everything up. And he did. He did. <laughs> so this is like, um, I think a really good example of the kind of stuff that was coming out of One Step Beyond at the time. And uh, it's interesting because the pilot, uh, which I can only vaguely remember now, but it's got Bright in the title. When they revamped the show in the 70s, they redid that episode. I think that was the pilot for the 78 episode or 70, late 70s episode. And John Newland came back as the host and he was much older then. And so they had him in like khakis. I don't know if you remember in the 70s, lots of dudes were like, they looked like they were game hunting. They were just like cool old guys. They were just and old guys. Yeah. They're they were just old guys. And like, and so like he's in like his cool game, not that I approve of game hunting, but he's like in game hunting gear and with his gray hair and um, looking at every bit as beautiful as he looked in the sixties. And so I don't know, do we want to add anything to this? I've said pretty much all I had to say about, about that one. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I think so too. I, yeah, I, I love the horror uh, anthologies and I'm, I'm, I am ashamed secretly and now in front of everyone that I've never watched the One Step Beyond before two days ago. Let it all out, Dan, let it all out. So uh, I will, let me give you just a little bit of background. Again, this aired January 10th, 1961 on ABC. It ran against um, the Gary Moore show, which I think was uh, like a variety show. And then on NBC was what I said earlier, Best of the Post, which was some kind of so NBC had a series of specials that ran in the t- in the same time slot against One Step Beyond, and the night uh, that they aired this particular episode, NBC aired a Best of the Post episode titled Valley of the Blue Mountain. I'm guessing it's an anthology show, but I, I don't know anything about it. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Bronson had already played a boxer that in a, in a program that aired just two days before this aired, so he was um, typecast as a boxer quite often. So for the Twilight Zone intersection here that I thought was really interesting, and um, God bless somebody on YouTube for mentioning this, it's also on the IMDb page. So in the manager's office of this episode is a fight poster promoting Bully Jackson. A year earlier, Ivan Dixon portrayed Bully Jackson in the Twilight Zone episode, A Big Tall Wish. Tall Wish, yes. Yeah, and so I think it's important to remember, it's not important for this, but it's important to remember that Newland and um, Serling were friends. And that uh, there's been a lot of hearsay about One Step Beyond kind of ripping off Twilight Zone, even though it, it came first. 
and Serling came to Newland about doing his show, but they were actually really good friends. And I feel like Charles Beaumont actually might have written for One Step Beyond at some point too. So, so there's a little bit of intersection between those two shows, but they're really not at all alike. So anybody listening, no, no. If, if you're really into Twilight Zone and you're thinking that's what you're going to get, it's not going to happen. This um, is, yeah. This is sort of more straightforward, just it wants to get you and make you feel a little, ooh, whereas Twilight Zone would do that, but it was also the social commentary stuff. Yeah, so. it was heavily steeped in that, and so this is not mm -hmm. trying to do that. This is just a half-hour entertainment, and it's mm -hmm. really great, and if you're into that, definitely see it, and this episode is a good place to start. Um, and then let's, let's go on to our big TV movie. Uh, we decided to cover a movie from 1993, which is uh, the, a really interesting decade for TV movies for me. Um, and it was a movie that Bronson made called Donato and Daughter. She's a policewoman on the most sensational case of her career. You think this is the work of a serial killer? Yes. Her father's a cop whose job is on the line. When you're in this case, Donato, you need this as much as I do. Together, they'll risk everything to save a city gripped with fear. I don't want you to win. Not your call, Sergeant. It's mine. Charles Bronson. Emmy Award winner Dana Delaney in a spellbinding thriller. He came after my son. He knows exactly what he's doing. Donato! and Daughter, next Tuesday. Due to some violent content, parental discretion is advised. We are in Los Angeles, and there is someone, a serial killer, is killing, in very unpleasant ways, nuns. And Charles Bronson plays Donato. I believe he's like Detective Sergeant Donato, who is um, who is assigned to a task force by the police chief to find this this guy, presumably, and, and get him off the streets. The tricky thing is that he's put on the task force with his daughter, Dina. I was going to say Dana, but his oh, yes, daughter, sorry. Dina. And the tricky thing after that is that Dina is actually his boss. Oh. <laughs> she's a lieutenant he's a sergeant and they don't get on together so i'm making this sound like it's a hilarious comedy which i thought it was when i first read the plot breakdown but it's actually a rather dark at times um <laughs> sort of serial killer police procedural but that's the basic premise uh donato and daughter with her in charge are tasked to find this man before he kills another nun and and will they catch him or her will they catch them will something more sinister happen i'm gonna leave it right there donato and daughter tonight on abc donato and daughter the quirky comedy of could have been a second it could have been a series it could have been yeah um and that's why i thought it was attached to family of cops because mm. it's like donato and daughter i mean how many of these cop freaking family things has he done well a bunch <laughs> it turns out right and so it's kind of funny um so I'll, I'll go last on this one um james what did you think of donato and daughter yeah very much uh, enjoyed this and yeah thank you for pointing me in the direction of all of these these examples but uh, especially this one i enjoyed it very much it was like a cross between his canon films and family of cops is the way, way i think you'd, you'd kind of it's like a, a bridge between between those two things really but it's far harder than i expected mm. you know gorier you know that the opening mm. scene where they find yeah. the, the nun's corpse and there's a couple of other corpses that you see you don't really see much on screen violence but you know far harder than i expected there's a there's a jar of fingers at one point and stuff like mm. that so there's you know you the, they didn't shy away from showing it when, when they needed to and I just thought it was really good, mostly because of the performances. And I thought Bronson's fantastic here. I think he's really plays it in a really sensitive way. I, I, alongside, again, I didn't know this this actor, uh, Dana Delaney or Dana yeah. Delaney. Dana. Thought she was fantastic. Thought she's really brought, you know, really uh, real gravitas to it. She seems really down to earth. And, you know, this could have been a, 
this could have been a big film, I think, in the early 90s. You know, if, they, mm. if they'd have done this as a, as a theatrical release, I very much enjoyed it. I like the quietness of it. I like the fact that there's, you know, there's traffic noise in some of the conversations that they're having. I like the fact that it's, you know, very kind of low key. And it's got some really great street scenes as well where, where they're, they're shooting on location, uh, which, which I really enjoyed. And, uh, and as soon as you see uh, Xander Berkeley's name in the credits, well, you know who. <laughs> you know who's done it, right? That, 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 but, but that was good because I, I like him. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I was looking forward to seeing him appearing on screen. And he's, and he's great in it. You know, he's, he's great in it as well. He's as good as ever. You know, he's, he's great whenever, whenever he's on screen. So uh, very much enjoyed this one. And yeah, thanks for pointing it in my direction. I'm actually kicking myself. I guess I assumed everybody would know who Dana Delaney is because she was so famous in the 90s um, mm -hmm. for starring on a TV show called China Beach. Yeah. This was a big deal for her because I think, I don't remember when she left China Beach or, or when the show got canceled, but she was still riding high off the fame of that um, and starting to work in other projects and, and uh, making her name for herself outside of that series. But here in the States, that I didn't watch China Beach, but it was huge. It was huge. And it made stars out of like all the women on that show. Um, Mark mm -hmm. Helgenberger, I believe, came off of that as well. I mean, some yes, really remarkable went, yeah. actresses. And that was her, her probably big breakout. But for me, I know her best for starring in one of my favorite Magnum P.I. episodes. It's a two-parter <laughs> titled L.A., and she plays uh, Tom Selleck's love interest in that. And it's where he comes out to L.A. and she's a lawyer and um, he's got to serve papers or something like that. And they end up having this like really great romance in the midst of this crime. Uh, she, she she appears in one more episode. She comes to Hawaii to visit him. I think the episode's called Out of Sync with Lisa Blount. Uh, it's so good. And um, and she was this one of my favorite uh, girlfriends of uh, Thomas Sullivan Magnum's. And so I guess I just assumed everybody knew her. But you picked out, I think, one of her finest qualities uh, of her presence is that she is very down to earth. She has a very, she's beautiful. Like whenever mm -hmm. Dana Delaney's on screen, I forget it. I don't want to <laughs> anything else. Yeah, yeah mm. she's just stunning. And her hair, oh my God, the color of her hair. <laughs> How do you get that color? I want it. But she's also very approachable, like Tom Selleck. So in a way they were like a perfect uh, love interest couple on that particular Magnum. Because what I like so much about Tom Selleck is he looks like Tom Selleck, but I also feel like I could go next door and knock on his door and be like, hey, you want to get a beer? You know, and Dana Delaney has that same quality to her that I feel like she's really stunning but also like I want to be her friend you know she she's just perfectly this... cast in this for that for that reason sorry to interrupt you and talk over you I didn't, didn't mean to do That's that okay. she, she's perfectly cast in this you know she, she really you know you believe she's a cop this isn't uh, mm -hmm. she doesn't look like a performance in that she's playing a, a cop who's got a hardness to her and a steel to her she, she really brings that across and really I really love the scenes between her and uh Charles Bronson when she calls him sergeant rather than dad that's those that's right. are always good mm -hmm. moments Donato and, yeah. she did yeah when she called him out out for him at the end she actually yelled out Donato and not dad and that really yes to me. yes there she <laughs> does yeah that's really really interesting and then there's a great moment obviously when she says to him because uh, their brother has her brother has died and you know do you ever wish it was me who died rather oh. Than, oh, which yes. is a really fantastic fantastic and, moment and, and and Bronson's acting there's great and it, and it leads to that really good climax on the on the roof which is very similar or to this to the end scene in 10 to midnight yeah there's a lot of similarities I feel like we could draw between the two films for sure mm -hmm. and but quick Dan Oh, did you? Thoughts? Oh, did, go ahead. if you want, if you want to finish, Amanda, you were halfway through your thoughts. Uh, finish I your don't thoughts. think 
I don't think I have much else to say. I just I just didn't think about Dana Delaney not being famous to somebody oh, okay. because okay. she's been in my life for so long. You know, mm -hmm. even though I didn't watch China Beach, everybody knew who she was. And then she sure. would just show up and all these things. She was an exit to Eden, which I remember oh, yes. was a big deal <laughs> because the movie was a flop. But she's so beautiful in it. And um, yeah, she is. And, gorgeous. Oh, my God. Yeah. And she's great in it, too. She's great in it. And um, she kind of saves the film. Her and um, David Bowie's wife, uh, Amon, is in it. Oh, she's yeah. great. Oh, God, yeah. she's fabulous in it. But um, and uh, and so it was just funny when you said that you hadn't seen the actress before, because I was like, what? because she's really famous, James. And. How could you not have heard of her? But anyway, Dan, what did you think of Donato and Daughter? I I really enjoyed it. I um I think it's 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 an excellent uh, police procedural with that that just little that little extra the the family element when it started when I read the initial break that thing of you know it but she's his boss and I thought oh dear was this like we're in like cop and a half stomp from my mom will shoot <laughs> turn her in hoochie category i don't i don't know where we are but but the fact that i saw and i'm sure you'll mention it that it was a, a jack early yeah uh based off a jack early novel i was okay i know who that is uh not, you know not not to say that jack early novels are the height of literature but but the the few i've encountered and uh, um and there are a bunch of them under i, I won't say more but um uh they're solid police procedural um, novels and so they always and and when you do a novel there's so much you have to write that you have to add all these extra bits that you wouldn't write if you were doing a screenplay so you get things like the 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 precinct is in a constant state of construction which i'm sure in the novel was mo was um, more of like um uh like a kind of a pressing thing like she's she's just going daughter is going into work Dina is going into work, uh, but there's this constant like drilling and construction and, and they're trying to get their job done. And there's so much noise. It's less emphasized in the movie and it kind of fades away by the end. But but that's sort of one of to me, one of those very novelistic sort of yeah. things that that you'd add to to get a reader to, to sort of more have it in their heads like this is really pushing down on them that it's like oh gosh now they're on top of and they're painting today and it's you know and the fumes you know just i uh that, that mixed with all the family stuff and uh oh and also the um the uh the one the the woman who gets spoiled the woman who gets shot who mm. was apparently um i guess was uh romantically involved with the brother i think at some point yeah that's yes right. and and so that's one of those it's, it's interesting because because it was based on a novel, I feel it's the script is richer than a normal mm -hmm. procedural. I mean, if you I'm not a huge Law and Order fan, but I've seen as most people have, I've probably seen 10 episodes of Law and Order, not meaning to sometimes, but they're just on and you you watch them and they're they come on and they do their procedural thing. Then they do their their court thing and they do. And it's all there's. There's not a lot of meat to it. It's very much a binging kind of thing. This is, I think, the the story and everything that's going on is sort of thicker. I don't know that that's quite the word I want to use, but it, there's more to it than that. And you can really feel the family dynamic. And you could feel like when the mom talks to him and when the mom talks to her, you could feel it. And when the killer is getting close to her family and her son, it's it's it, it's a little richer. It's a little stronger, I think. And um. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this is like the best movie of 93 or 94 or whatever it was that came out, <laughs> but, but I think it's, it's having never heard of it until you proposed the, that we should watch it. 
I thought it was pretty darn good. And it moves yeah. nicely. And the killer is creepy. And um, there's a great scene where uh, Charles Bronson's character goes to Arizona to investigate the killer's background, which is, it reminded me of the non-comedic version of the scene in Fletch, where Fletch goes to investigate the bad guy and he <laughs> pretends to be Harry Truman and he's talking to the parents of, of the bad. It, it was like the non-comedic version of that. And um, I, yeah, I, I, overall, I, I really thought it was good. There were a few moments here and there where I'm, you know, I felt like maybe they were, they, they trimmed maybe a bit too much, like, like with the construction that just sort of yeah. fades away. I felt like maybe that didn't develop the way it should have, but overall it works and it moves and it's emotional and it's creepy and it's exciting and it's and in the end it's satisfying and, and the the ending scene the ending tracking helicopter shot where the two of them are walking oh, along yeah. a roof and spoiler as they're having this discussion like so what are you doing I don't know, and they're having this fun discussion in the background the whole time is the dead body of the killer with like six bullets in his chest <laughs> and it's, it's 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 a hilarious shot um but it's i think overall yeah it's it's a really sharp movie and i i really enjoyed it I think oh, the good. film has earned that 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 ending, right? Because yes. it juggles all those things really well. It's mm -hmm. a, it's it's high quality, actually. It's a it's a it's a high quality piece of work. I was expecting it to be far, I don't know, not not <laughs> trashier, but I, I think what Danny was saying, a lot lighter than it was, and a lot less um, mm -hmm. meaty, right? And I think I think you've got you got it right. It is. It, it, there's there's a lot of material here, and the film balances it really well, and mm -hmm. It doesn't drag, and I could easily watch it again. I mean, I could put it on now and have no problem watching it from beginning to end, right? And I only watched it yesterday, so it's 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 a really strong piece of work, actually. Really strong scenes, and that's you know you've got when you've got a great cast and good locations, and you you know you're making it on location and and and, and a plot where you're willing to show, you know, some dark stuff. You know, it really does. Uh, it shows it shows what, what what film is capable of. It's a high quality TV movie. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Um, one thing I wanted to mention: you guys are both kind of talking about. Well, I guess you talked about it more, uh, James, just now. You're sort of talking about how it's shot on location, and and so uh, just my quick opinion of it. I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a lot of fun. I did not get bored at all watching it. Um, but one of the things that I loved about it was that, and Dan can probably attest to this is that's not what LA really looks like. That is one small section of Los Angeles mm -hmm. made to look really freaking urban yeah. and gritty. And mm -hmm. downtown does have some grittiness to it, but nobody lives downtown like that, no, you know, or didn't really. then. They created like this really interesting universe that is nothing like my experience of living there. And, mm -hmm. um, and I loved it. I loved where they shot it. Um, and they shot it downtown because there's parts where they're actually on the streets and you can see. So one of the things about downtown is like um, that they, they sort of lied in the movie is that once 10 o'clock hits, everything closes down. It's yeah. just it's just a barren wasteland. And mm -hmm. all those like, um, I don't know what you call those, but like those kind of garage door closings go over all the business yes. fronts yeah. and lock mm -hmm. down. And yeah. there used to be a theater down there, um, the Orpheum. 
Mm, and the yes. Orpheum used to have movie marathons for Halloween, and I would go every year. The thing is that the marathons would run till like two or three in the morning, but after ten, there was nowhere to go in between the films to get something to eat mm -hmm. because everything was locked down and there was no businesses existed, and there was nobody on the streets, not even really homeless people. Like it just closed down, and I thought it was so interesting that Bronson's character lives in an apartment because there's nobody lives in an apartment like that in los angeles downtown nobody and uh and it, it felt like they were in new york or chicago and i love that yeah it yeah. was such a neat like aesthetic and they shot so xander berkeley where his character works was the uh Bradbury building, which is a very mm, famous yes. building yes, yes, in Los Angeles downtown, and it's beautiful. And they, they have a couple of old buildings like that downtown. The library, the downtown library is man magnificent. And yes. um, oh, and wow. so they, yeah. they chose the locations really well, like when they were mapping out where they were going to shoot stuff. They did a really good job creating this kind of alternative universe yes. to, to L.A. And I like that they tried to stay away from the sort of glamorous side of LA and like the Palm beach, like she lives on the beach, but it doesn't feel like, like the way I'm used to seeing the beach in films and stuff, you know, yeah. it's, it's just, and she's only there for a brief moment before she moves in with her dad. But like it, I was really taken with the photography of it. And I was thinking about it because so Dan's been with me here for a while now, and we've only watched a handful of movies from the nineties, but one of them was uh, death of a cheerleader. Mm -hmm. And I remember Dan saying, Oh man, like the camera shots were just really like, I don't know what the phrase you use, but they were really super economical. And there were things that they were, it just, it wasn't, it felt like a TV movie. It didn't have any kind of cinematic aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. And, and TV movies can be like that. And in the nineties, there was this fine line of TV movies. There were some that seem to be able, I don't know if they just had different budgets or what, but uh, some of them had way more cinematic flavor to them. Like, Donato and daughter and then some of them look like death of a cheerleader, you know, and they look like a TV movie They have like these trademark camera shots and and there's not a lot of flourish to them This movie is like all flourish, you know, yeah. and so it's it's such an interesting Anomaly to me and there's there's other TV movies from the 90s that look like that But this one really felt cinematic and I don't know if it's because Bronson was there and maybe bringing him on allowed them to spend more money like they got more i don't really know the story behind it but i know it does look slightly different than other tv movies of this era i don't know if um i've probably already given away uh who the killer was and what so yeah. i won't, oh, I won't, okay. won't, won't say it again but there's a moment where uh the one of the characters gets killed late on in the film yeah. in an apartment mm -hmm. and there's a tracking shot that kind of tracks away from it across the across the apartment it's about five to ten minutes from the end and it's really sophisticated. It's really unmotivated camera work, but really shows that stylistic flourish. The, the, the director is really, it's not just shooting for economy here. It's shooting mm. to create an actual uh, mood, right? And using the camera in an expressionistic way. So there's some really beautiful camera work and camera movements, as, as you say. It's uh, it's not, it's it's high quality. It's cinema quality, right? It's, it's that, yeah. that's, that's the level that it has. This could have been released theatrically. I've no, no, no problem and no one would know the difference. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It definitely has like a flavor to it that you didn't see as much in the 90s um, and some 70s TV movies. I guess it just depended, but uh, it stands out because of that to me. And then in just terms of the film itself, uh, I really liked it. It's just really well paced. Um, I love all the actors that are in it. Uh, it helps to have people like Charles Bronson and Dana Delaney in anything and mm -hmm. Xander Berkeley. So funny Xander Berkeley story. Uh, when I lived in L.A., 
I ran into him on the street. I was walking somewhere and he was walking past me and it was clear that I recognized him, right? Because my eyes got really big and he he saw me and he made this face kind of like, oh, she's, she recognizes who I am. And I know in his, he's been in so many great things and, and I know he's running through the roster of all these films he's made in his head. And I'm like, dude, you were in Poison Ivy too. <laughs> <laughs> which is like the best movie ever and and i didn't say that to him we just passed each other in the street and it didn't even occur to me till later and i would say you know i'd be watching tv and he'd show up in something and i'm like oh my god this guy's been in so much stuff i feel like such a heel mm-hmm. like that was the first thing i thank god i didn't say anything right so like when i met larry drake who's in dark night of the scarecrow i was like you're dr giggles you're dr giggles now of course i was really drunk and i walked up to his table and i said that and he was not that interested in talking to me but um <laughs> And you know what I mean? So luckily I didn't do that with Xander Berkeley, but like, um, it's so funny because, uh, he's, he usually plays these kind of sleazy characters and he's really good. I don't think he's a sleazy person, but, but boy, he, he plays it well. Yeah. He's good at it. <laughs> so really that, I, lo- I love the scene, you know, just so I don't forget saying that that scene on the roof where, where you've got the, 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 the friend who, who's, who's pregnant, the, the other, the other cop yeah. who's pregnant. That's, that's, that's such a great scene. And there's, yeah. It's interesting. They've got two rooftop you know, shootout yeah. chases, which you don't you don't often get two separate ones in a film. <laughs> no, it's really, it really leads to a really you know that's it's 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 really good drama and it's a bit mm-hmm. hokey. She just announced that she's pregnant, and you know, lo and behold, she's shot in the next scene. But it mm-hmm. does affect you, and I think that 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 actress is uh, she's been in Lethal Weapon two. I think I recognised her from that. She was one of the uh, one of the cops in Lethal Weapon two, and. I thought she played it quite well in, a, in quite a small role as well. I'm, I'm going to try and find her name. I can't find oh, her. I have it. Uh... Weeks, is it? Is it something like that? Oh, no, 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 no that's it's... Kim Weeks is the girl, is the oh, I'm uh, sorry. Sandra Berkeley's wife. Um, oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry, the wife. Yes, sorry. Yeah, she yeah, is no. a Jeanette Goldstein is the actress's name. That's that's the one. Yeah, Jeanette Goldstein. Mm. Yeah, she, wow. she, she's really good as well. Well, you know, you have to admit it's it's really ballsy to shoot a pregnant woman and kill her in anything. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. you know, I was not expecting that. And I mean, I guess when the camera when the gunfight started, I was like, Oh yeah, she's gonna get shot. But I wasn't expecting her to get shot in the stomach it, and I, to die. I will say the one tricky thing about that scene is the moment she goes into slow motion, I thought she's dead. She's yeah. in slow motion. I mean what <laughs> I why why is this and I, I also think that possibly in the book there because she says i'm pregnant oh that's wonderful and then like five minutes later right in the gut i feel like maybe in the book there would have been more space yeah there so when that happens it it was more effect i mean it's obviously affecting when it happens but it's also a bit like okay yeah that we just put a red shirt on you and you are yeah it's It's really effective because so Dana Delaney is kind of trying to work her way up and then they're like, okay, you're going to run this task force and she's really excited about it until she finds out her dad's on it, right? And then, yeah, but then she makes a really bad mistake because they don't run a check on this supposed suspect mm. before they go after him because they're so desperate to catch the killer at this point. And so through a series of just mishaps, they end up killing a friend of hers who's pregnant. And I like that because it's really dark, you know, yeah. because it was a preventable crime. They didn't try to like, to like make it easier on the characters by like having like, um, he had an alibi. He couldn't have been there during at least one of the crimes they found out. Right. And, and so they don't skate around it and, and try to make it like, well, it could have been him. It was just purely 
bad police work yes. in, in a lot of mm. ways. And and that's great because that adds to the film and it makes it more real because let's face it, uh, police work is a lot about a lot of red tape, right? Mm -hmm. And about like being under pressure of things. And it, I think that having this sort of mishap happen to the degree that it does kind of shows the sort of pressure that they work under and that, and that these horrible mistakes happen and then you have to figure out a way to reconcile with them, right? And maybe they don't spend as much time with it, but I kind of feel like uh, Jeanette's character kind of looms over the film in a way because it was sort of shocking to yeah. do that to her. So, mm -hmm. so I like that aspect of it. And I do like that there's a lot of stuff in there that it feels, I don't know, realistic, because I'm obviously not a police officer. I don't know what's realistic about crime fighting, but but it gives it a flavor that makes you feel like you're really in it with these people, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was that was really great. And also, since we're talking about actors we really like, Bonnie Bartlett plays Bronson's wife. And mm -hmm. Bonnie Bartlett plays a horrible racist on an episode of The Golden Girls. You see how I remember these people? She was probably like in some Oscar-winning movie, and I'm like, you're so good, she's a racist. <laughs> and it was, she's so good at like these really stern kind of roles. Mm -hmm. And I really liked her in this. And one of the things that I thought was so great was that they just casually mentioned that Bronson could have taken over her dad's business. Yeah, that was interesting. And yeah. that's how you know that they have all this money because their apartment's really nice. And you're like, how is this? How can they afford this? Well, it's her place, mm. right? She, they bought it with her family's money. And I, I like this idea of like this rich family who have basically shunned that side. And I won't want to say shunned. I don't think they're shamed of it, but like they've decided to become cops over probably taking what seemed like a much more comfortable position that would have paid a lot more money. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and for for the good of uh, fighting evil or whatever. And so so like there's some really interesting like little things in the film. And I think you're right. Probably in the novel, they've laid all of that out. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe Tommy's death. I think it could have used more impact in the movie. Makes a little more sense. Yeah. 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 I think that they could have carried it out. Or I think they probably carried it out better in the novel. But there's some really neat little things that are happening all over the place. And so like it's a movie I found is better if you don't casually watch it. It's yes. got a lot of casual quality too because yes. it's beautiful to look at. The acting's good. And on the surface, um, like I was saying earlier, it looks like all this stuff's happening and that's fine. But then it also has all these little things, you know, mm -hmm. that I'm guessing they just took from the novel and sprinkled it in. Uh, it adds more to the characters. It gives them some, some kind of meat, right? And mm -hmm. like you guys were saying. And that's one of the aspects of the film that I really like. It's just it's just as a little kind of coda to that scene on the, on the roof where the pregnant cop gets shot is there the, i think it, i don't think it's the very next scene but the next time you see charles bronson's character uh, donato he go he goes to to church yes and he lights two candles mm -hmm. obviously oh, one for right. the one for the one for the mother one yes. for the unborn baby which was I, I thought was a really really nice touch you know like like really again underlined what had happened and you know and um in a in a, in a subtle way um another very good scene so let me ask you guys, what did you think about when, okay, so Xander Berkeley's killed a couple people and, and he's revealed early on, so we're not really revealing anything by saying this. It's clear who the killer is. Um, yeah. It's not a whodunit. It's not somebody they know. And actually the trailer or the TV spot uh, makes it look like he might be romancing Dana Delaney mm -hmm. and they actually had a relationship and then we find out he's a serial killer, which clearly doesn't happen in this. And one <laughs> of the things that Dana Delaney said um, in interviews uh, about why she wanted to do this film, A, to work with Charles Bronson, but B, she said it was so great to make a movie where she's not in a love story. 
Mm. And because you don't see that women are always attached to some kind of romance. Right. And here she's just a cop working and she has an ex-husband. But like there's there's no like, are they Gino? Yeah. So like it's really cool. But so anyway, so Xander Berkeley's uh, he's taken on to putting on different types of costumes to uh, camouflage himself so that these nuns will let their guards down. And one of them happens to be a cop costume. And he's in downtown LA and this nun walk, there's nuns everywhere. I never saw that many nuns in LA in my life. <laughs> and they're everywhere. And and he walks up to her and he's like, hey, you know, I saw you walking in. I thought I should protect you because of all the stuff that's happening with nuns. And of course she thinks it's a police officer, right? And so she's like, okay. And then um, she ends up dead in an elevator. So, uh, Donato and daughter, uh, being the really smart people that they are, start already thinking, well, maybe he put the body there because he's toying with us and maybe he lives in this building, right? And so anyway, they're going to already do like, a, what's that called? Where you go up and down and you check all the apartments and close off the building and whatever. Canvas and the building. Canvas, I thank you. And um, I'm out of words today. And so they're canvassing <laughs> the building and they go to this one guy's house who I believe is supposed to be gay and they're harassing him. Now you heard you like to wear costumes. Do you have some kind of dress-up outfit, like a nun's habit? I have a cape. I do not have a nun's habit. What is this, Nazi Germany? Are you really allowed to search my apartment without a warrant? We're not searching your apartment, Mr. Lyle. If I was to search this apartment, you'd really know it. You want us to search the apartment? Can we see the cape, please? Again, it reminded me of 10 to Midnight, because mm. they did that, can I use your bathroom? Which happens in 10 to Midnight. <laughs> um, and so they can go through his stuff. And, um, but, but I felt like they were being, it felt like a scene that might not play as well today. Did you guys have any kind of feelings about that particular scene? Um, no, I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't stand out particularly for me. I can see, I can see what, I can see the point you're making now. I thought the guy was relatively sympathetic, I think. I didn't mm. think that they made him out to be a figure of fun necessarily. And maybe that changed, changed it, the it, tone of it slightly. But again, it, it played into that police procedural aspects of it and of course which 10 to midnight is about it's about the you know it's it's about sloppy police work lets the man back out on the streets again right and he's like you know and um you know it all plays into that i, I mean it just made the thing more morally complex for me but it didn't stand out as being particularly problematic but now you mention it i can see how yeah it might play differently today yeah just real quick, I don't think he wasn't sympathetic. I think it was the way they treated him. Like when they went to his closet to look at his cape and they kind of passed this look, you know, and they kind of, it just didn't play right for me, like that but aspect for, of the treatment. For me, I think that was all played into this idea of the film being harder than I expected, as in mm. like a harder mm -hmm. tone. It's it's not sure. throwing yeah. lip service to the to the audience necessarily. Sure, they're, sure. They're, they're still do it, having to do this really difficult job in difficult circumstances and maybe not doing it terribly well in some in some cases mm -hmm. and i thought that's what i mean it had that hard edge to it which um which i really liked i i think with that scene for me i, I, I part of it is because it's donato and daughter you you might in, in part of my mind it's like well they're not gonna act like you know good cop bad cop like freebie and the bean or something but they, but they sort of do they go they do. They're, they're they're kind of a little rough to the guy but to me i like that guy because he reminded me of um there, there's a guy earlier in the movie who talks about his sister who was a nun and he's like and he's this very shaky guy up on a roof like feeding birds or something oh, i don't know what he's doing and it's like uh yeah i went out for a walk well how long did you go to how long was the walk uh, it, was, uh, it was like a half an hour was it a half hour it's a half an hour. It was an hour, an hour and a half. I don't know. We just went out for a walk. You want to know how long the walk was? Yes. Half an hour? 
Hour and a half? Two hours? Bert, you don't win anything. Only you know the answer. It's weird because that, like, that guy and the guy in the apartment there with his costumes and things almost reminded me of like an early 70s giallo, like a bird with a crystal plumage sort of character. You know, those weird characters mm. that they would come across in a giallo who, who, are, who you know aren't the killers, but are just kind of this... You know, I, I'm a little weird. You guys are a little weird. You know, and in cop the world of the cops, you probably walk into slightly weird places all the time. And to me, it's sort of like seeing him was sort of like, oh, it's it's like that guy with the nun. He's sort of just like, he's doing his own thing and he's living his life. And these two straight-laced cops walk in and are maybe a bit judgy about the way he lives yeah. his life. But they shouldn't be. But they are trying to catch a killer. And there was a, <laughs> there was a dead nun in your elevator. So, you know, let's, 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 so it didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't bother me, but I, I, like you said, I, I, I could, I could see someone watching and being a bit like, eh, I think they're treating him a bit too rough, possibly. Well, maybe. Is it, is it okay if we rename the movie Dead Nun in an Elevator? Let's do it. I'm, okay. uh, they got two titles already and uh, <laughs> the third one there. The Blu-ray release will be Dead Nun in, a, in an Elevator and, we, and you can watch it with Dead Women it's, in London. Is it that a giallo? It's like a, it sounds a, like a, a dead anune in the elevator, <laughs> la lifto. <laughs> the one thing that guy does that I absolutely love and is one of my favorite moments is when Dana Delaney looks at him, Dina looks at him and says, uh, you may want to contact your lawyer. And he looks at her and says what I would say and what I think a lot of people would say, I don't have a lawyer, <laughs> which I, I absolutely love because you're always getting that in these things where it's like, it's time to contact your lawyer. And everyone across the board is like, okay. But if you said that to me, I'd be like, um, I don't know. You got a card for Perry Mason? I don't yeah. know. Matt Lock around? I don't know. I don't know. So so I just, I, I, I think it's an interesting scene and I like that guy. <laughs> Yeah, I like him too. I was just curious about um, if we mm -hmm. felt like in today's, I don't know, lens, if we would see it differently. But apparently I'm just a social justice warrior. <laughs> I can't help it. Um, that's what I do. So, um, yeah, so this was a really neat film. And um, and one, I really am angry at myself that I've had it first. I have tons of movies, mm -hmm. though, that I haven't watched yet. But, like, uh, it's just been sitting there on VHS. And I've been like, I should watch this. And then I just haven't. So it was nice to have an excuse to... to get this out and it's really inspired me to check out family of cops which i think was the last things bronson might have done before he retired i'm i can't remember offhand now yes it is he did family of cops one two and three and that was it and death wish um five five was between donato and daughter in the first family of cops movie yay yay i like death <laughs> wish five it's better than people say it is yes it is it is but yeah so this was really good i don't know do we have anything else we want to add to it um do you know much about when, how it was? Well, I'm, I'm sure you're going to go through it now. How it how it went down, how it was um, reviewed, whether whether it got got good audience figures. Uh, yeah, I have all of that. I can yeah. do the background here. I will tell you yeah. before I dive into it. Um, there was not a ton of promotion for this film, and that really surprised me because I thought, well, Bronson's in a movie. It would be really big, right? TV movie, and um, and there was very little press that I could find attached to it. Uh, but I did find a couple things. I am going to post that they uh, he did an interview on the set um, that somebody put up on YouTube, and I'll probably try to put some clips of that, if not the whole thing, on uh, this recording because it's a it's a pretty great interview. Um, and and I will mention something a really neat piece of trivia about this film at the mm. end. But uh, so this was uh, Donato and Daughter aired on September twenty first, nineteen ninety three. Um, it aired on CBS. 
it was shot in downtown LA, um, as we mentioned, and uh, a lot of the interiors were shot at the Bradbury Building. Um, and if you've never seen the Bradbury Building, just look for the scenes where Xander Berkeley's in his office. It's just a stunning building. Um, it ran against on ABC, Roseanne, Coach, and the premiere of NYPD Blue, which is important because, um, you know, yeah. that show was huge when it came out because it was going to have nudity and a little bit more violence. And I remember watching the premiere for NYPD Blue, so I clearly did not watch Donato and Daughter when it originally aired. <laughs> it didn't get huge ratings, though, uh, and I mean NYPD Blue. It got a 15-plus rating, which is not huge. I think at the time, the highest-rated show was getting a 23. And then on NBC, it ran against the John Larroquette show, a sitcom called Second Half, and uh, a new show that NBC used to have called NBC Dateline. Uh, Donato and Daughter only got a 14.8 slash 24, which is like less than NYPD Blue uh, and much less than Roseanne and Coach. Um, I think it ended up at number 45 out of 94 programs, so somewhere in the middle. So it it was middling. It did rerun in May of 1995 and it got a 9.4 slash 16. Um, And as Dan mentioned, it was based on Jack Early's novel from 1988. The only real reviews I could find were from the LA Times and Variety. Uh, The LA Times said that the relationship angle was weak, but the suspense was good. Uh, John uh, Matsumoto of the LA Times wrote, quote, the problems with with Donato and Daughter is that it never exhibits the type of sensitivity or insight necessary to fully convey the inner thoughts and feelings of this uncommunicative pair, end quote. But uh, he did really like Xander Berkeley. He basically called him cool as a cucumber psychopath, and he thought that he really uh, livened up the film. Variety wrote, quote, Charles Bronson's craggy mug and several flavorful supporting performances, including the cadavers, prop up this otherwise formulaic suspense thriller about a cop-slash-daughter-led task force investigating a serial killer with a deadly thing for nuns. And that was really all I could find. And I was really surprised. Um, Really surprised. One thing I will note is that one of the reviewers, and I I think it might have been the guy from the LA Times, thought that the directing was really poor. And, and it's interesting that James, first one of the first things he brought out was how well Rod Holcomb put the film together. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of difference of opinion there. So Holcomb... It could be that I've got no taste. <laughs> no, I don't think that's it. Because I do think he puts the movie really, especially for a TV movie. I mean, you can yeah. compare it. If you ever get a chance to watch Death of a Cheerleader, I mean, you'll just see yeah. visually how different the two films are. Yeah. Uh, and they're only a year apart. So Rod Holcomb, um, the director, was primarily an episodic director. But in the 1990s, he ended up almost directing nothing but TV movies. Uh, he did things like A Promise to Keep, Angel Street, and Convict Cowboy, none of which I've seen, all of which I want to watch. Um, so Xander Berkeley's first film is, I think, one of his most famous. Uh, he was in Mommy, Mommy Dearest. Uh, you might remember he plays Joan Crawford's son. He was in Candyman, which I totally forgot. And when I was passing by on the street, totally forgot. Um, and then I made a note here where I wrote, I remember him best from Poison Ivy 2. And then I put a little smiley face because I love that movie. So Delaney took the part so she could work with Bronson. And as I said, she called him a tough nut to crack. But she said that once... Um, she got him talking and warmed up. Uh, he warmed up to her that he turned out to be a very sweet and funny man. Uh, and she really enjoyed working with him. Uh, and as I said, she was drawn to the family drama, but also not having a love story. And at this time, Dana Delaney was uh, really making a name for herself. And she had actually signed a contract to begin producing TV movies. Hmm. But she wouldn't end up producing anything until the early 2000s when she produced two TV movies. One called Final Jeopardy from 2001, which she also stars in, and another one from 2003 called Open House. 
Um, and of course, after production wrapped on this, Bronson headed directly into Death Wish 5. What I thought was really funny is that the year after this aired, in 1994, Donato and Daughter got an R rating through the MPAA. So I'm mentioning wow. this for a couple different reasons. One, um, this kind of coincides with uh, James talking about that it's got a hard edge to it, unless they've added something to it. And two, I guess it must have had some kind of theatrical release somewhere uh, for it to even bother to go through the MPAA, unless it had to have a rating to go on home video. I don't know. But it had its name changed. I'm sorry, if you can hear that wrestling, that's my rats. Sorry, they slept until <laughs> like five minutes ago. Um, so they changed uh, the name of the movie to Dead to Rights uh in 1998 and that's when it came out in on home video that's the copy i have and that's really all the background i have and i was shocked i thought for sure i would plug this into my uh archival resources and i would get all kinds of stuff about this film just because bronson was in it and it was a tv movie but that wasn't to happen i kind of think the sea wolf which he made around the same time kind of took some of the press away because mm -hmm. um it was uh, made for TNT, and at the time, TNT the the basic cable channels were really putting a lot of money into their TV movies, and they were they were really big films, and uh, and the Sea Wolf had was um, based off of a Jack London novel, and so I think uh, it just had more cachet, and probably all the attention went to that film, and then he made this, and they were like, oh look, he made a movie for CBS, and also he did, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this, he did a movie called uh, a remake of Yes Virginia, There Is a Santa Claus, and I think he did that after Jill Ireland died, and so that took a no some more of the press away. So I think this film kind of just came out after when I think people were paying more attention to his TV work. Um, that's my personal thought on it. So that's what I could find on it. I'm glad we all liked it. I guess we yeah, would right. recommend all of these. Um, yeah. If you were going to recommend one of these three things we watched to people listening, what would you recommend, James? I think you have a pretty good time with yeah. Donato and Daughter, really. I think it's really watchable. And I think it's uh, it'll be a good evening, in, you know, 90, a really good 90 minutes. But if you're in the mood for kind of curious, <laughs> more odd pieces, then 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 definitely um, the One Step Beyond episode. Uh, Dan? I think I'm going to go with uh, Donato and Daughter, too. And actually, I just found out, did you know uh, did you know any more about Jack Early? No. Jack Early is actually a woman named Sandra Scopitone. Oh. Who's written 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, about 20 novels. And written three under the title, under the name Jack Early. I did not know that. I didn't I, the, the name was bothering me. And I thought, I know that name. I know that name. But yeah, so Jack Early is... Uh, a writer named Sandra Scapitone. Scapitone? Scapitone? I don't know. <laughs> but um, I, I would say of the three things here, I, 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 I think Donato and Daughter is a lot of fun. I think if you like your anthologies, well, One Step Beyond is, is probably going to be great. I haven't seen them all yet, but I think it's going to be great. And Man with the Camera is, um, I think if you watch a bunch of them, it will accumulate and be pretty darn fun but just watching one was a bit insubstantial so i i or unsubstantial uh, so i would go with donato and daughter cool yeah i'm gonna go with the one step beyond episode because i think it's a pretty good entry point into what the series was trying to do and because for me even though i enjoyed all three of these it's the performance for me that i think mm. really stands out and um and it's kind of different from i think how we're used to seeing bronson and so i think that people might get a treat 
um, watching that. So uh, there you go. We all hated Yay. Man with the Camera. We all hated it. No. <laughs> so um, there you go. And so this was our little tribute to Bronson. It had some rocky waves there. So I'm sorry about that. Um, and uh, I think before we go, let's all just kind of catch everybody up with what we've been doing. So James, uh, tell us a little bit about where we can find you and what you're working on. And if you have any new podcast episodes. Yeah, so my um, podcast, uh, Newton Talks, uh, is, is still producing episodes and people can go on and find that online. They can find it through my website. Uh, I don't know if you're putting a link to link to it on the on, on your website. So yeah. they, can, they can check it through that. And then through that, you'll find a link to my website, which I'll have a, a link to my, my Vimeo and my, my, my YouTube. So you can check out some of the films that I've done and some of the writing that I've done on uh, my website as well. So uh, yeah, just go through the link and um, see what you can find. Awesome. Um, Dan, what are you up to? Uh, I'm, uh, Adventure Super Train is around 100 and, episode 114 or so. We're still talking Search with Mitchell, Kolchak with Tim, and the Kolchak just, Kolchak just came on a Blu-ray. And I know a lady, I forget her name, who did a commentary or two on the Kolchak Blu-ray set. I'll have to look her name up. I don't remember. Oh, Donato, I think was their last yeah, name. Yeah, I think it might be. Um, uh, but, but we're doing culture on there. And um, uh, and uh, Amy the Conqueror and I might be at the end of our Planet of the Apes chat by the time this goes up. And you might be hearing a new show. But uh, yeah, that, that's going along. And Happy Days is in between season five and six, my Rockin' All Week with you. And the minute by minutes, uh, the three minute by minutes I'm doing, we're around, we're almost a half an hour into the three um 70s friends of frankenstein spooky minutes spent in ghost house and howling two and seven two so that's where we are oh and buy my book from beverly hills to hooterville exploring the <laughs> henningverse go on amazon buy two copies then there you can you can have a fight with a friend and you can hit each other with i don't know i don't know it's been a long episode yeah i know it's been something crazy so <laughs> and that made my head spin all that stuff you're doing i'm like an yeah. episode four of the trap cast and it's ridiculous um, <laughs> but i'm hoping th things will quiet down i say that every episode and then something happens but so just briefly uh here's what i've been doing since we last spoke it's it's i'll just go through really quickly um i did a lot of commentaries at the beginning of the year that are just now coming out and some of them are will be of interest to the listeners because they are tv movie related so I did a commentary for a movie called The Victim, which stars Elizabeth Montgomery, and was, um, I think, written by Merwin Gerard, who uh, created One Step Beyond. So if you like One Step Beyond or The Victim, you should uh, cross over to the other one. Um, that was a lot of fun for me, and that just came out through Kino Lorber, along with um, uh, two other TV movies, Scream Pretty Peggy and The Screaming Woman. So you can get those three together, and they would make a wonderful triple. I also did three audio essays for Vinegar Syndrome for their terror, televised terror box set. And I did three audio essays and it, it was really fun. I recorded that at the beginning of the year during the winter freeze, by the way. Um, and that was a very uh, stressful time for me. And then I ended up doing a commentary for a TV movie called Freedom, which stars Mayor Winningham, was written by Barbara Turner, um, who is the mother of Jennifer Jason Lee. And this is uh, loosely based on the real story of Barbara Turner's other daughter, Carrie. And it's on a box set called Primetime Panic, also released to Vinegar Syndrome, but through the company Fun City Editions. The other two movies are uh, Dreams Don't Die and Death Train to Osaka. Um, and that's a really fabulous box set. And they put a lot of hard work into that and televised terror. Um, all the transfers look amazing. I, yes, I did do two commentaries for the Kolchak box set, which just came nice. out as of this recording. The commentaries I did were for Amanda the Amanda Donato. 
Amanda Donato did two commentaries for the Trevi Collection and Legacy of Terror. That was really fun for me, but I actually had maybe... I don't want to say one thing is better than the other. I love all the projects I worked on, but I did um, a commentary for a night gallery episode, which is coming out mm, in November. Yeah. Um, at the end of November, the episode I did has the two segments, the house and certain shadows on the wall. And I had, I couldn't even tell you how much fun that was for me because I'm a huge fan of night gallery. I know we've been talking a little bit about Rod Serling to this episode, but night gallery was my show over Twilight mm -hmm. Zone. You know, I just loved it. And the first season was really on fire. There's so many good episodes and I'm, I'm really, really excited to be a part of that set. Um, I also did a commentary that came out last month called Alone in the Dark. It's a horror movie with Jack Palance and Martin Landau and a bunch of other great people. And I did that with Justin Kurzweil of The Hysteria Continues. I did my first video essay with my friend Chris O'Neill. We did it for the Toolbox Murders. Um, and my essay is about how the movie is actually about grief and loss and how it's a very relatable film for people who've gone through that. Um, I did the liner notes for a Arrow release coming out called My Stepmother's an Alien, which is a Kim Basinger joint that I really liked. Um, I did not write about Kim Basinger in that, but I'm looking for another Kim Basinger movie so I can really cheerlead what a wonderful actress she is. And then finally, Dan and I are on a release together. Oh, yes. Um, that's right. I did I did two things on this. So Arrow is releasing in December, I think, Phantom of the Mall, which is this terrific low-budget horror mm -hmm. movie from the late 80s. It takes place in a mall. Um, and uh, I wrote about mall culture in the liner notes, and I also did the commentary with my friend Ewan Kant, who is the producer of the extras. We did the commentary for The Prey when that came out. And Dan wrote the main booklet, part of the yes. booklet, for Phantom of the Mall. And I think there's some mall madness in there too. Yes, um, a bit. Yeah. <laughs> How could there not be? And um, and that's what I remember doing. That's been announced. Um, I think the best thing to do is follow me at Made for TV Mayhem on Twitter, if anybody wants to keep up with things I'm doing because I can't remember all of it to be honest with you. Um, and uh, if you want to follow the show on any of our social media, you can find us on Instagram at Made for TV Mayhem. You can find us on Twitter at TV Mayhem Podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Made for TV Mayhem Show. And you can always email us at TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. And usually here we tell you what the next episode's going to be, but that would mean I'd have to have programmed the next episode. And uh, I forgot. So <laughs> we'll figure out what it is. And I'm not sure if this episode's going to air before or after, but I know we had planned on doing a Jeannot Zouark. And apparently I'm saying that wrong because my friend interviewed him. And Is it like shark? More like shark? Well, it's it's Zouark and it rhymes with shark. But I think okay. that you know I'm getting wrong. I'm not really. Oh, okay. I think right. I've just totally butchered this man's name. But we're going to do a double feature of him, which will either have already come out or is coming out again is very soon. And I think we, we decided to do Night of Terror. Yes, which, yeah. And, and, and we're just going to talk about Jaws 2 oh, for two hours. Yeah, we'll talk about Jaws 2. And he also did, uh, I think it's called You'll Never See Me Again is the second well, Sounds one. right, yeah. Yeah, that we're going to do. So, And then we have more guests lined up, so I'm really excited. And a big thank you to James because thank a, you, James. he always brings so much to the conversation. But also, mm -hmm. B, this show was like a, a, it was a clown show. It was a clown show. I feel like we I want to thank you both anyway for, for, for inviting me oh. on. So it's been, it's been really good. I'll tell you what's been really great about it. It's just been, you know, you, you get to a certain age and you think you've, you know, you've, you've learned about everything you need to learn about. So being confronted by things that I'd never seen before and didn't mm. know much about was, 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 was really exciting. So I want to thank you both again for that. Oh, good. Oh, of course. Yeah. It's yeah. fun for me too, because these are things I hadn't seen any of these to the best of my knowledge <laughs> or didn't remember anyway. And, um, 
And so it was really great. And anytime you can sandwich Charles Bronson into something for me, I, I will take that. So that was really good for me because I, I just adore him. And and mm -hmm. I wish he was still here. I know 100 is old, but he brought such presence to film that was so unlike any other actor I can think of. Mm -hmm. And um, and he was really important in my life personally and, and just in the world of cinema, clearly. And so it was really nice to like look at the things that he did that a lot of people haven't talked a lot about. So mm -hmm. thank you both for coming out uh, on here to um, help me do that. And uh, thank you everybody if you made it to the end of this. We really appreciate it. And we will <laughs> talk to you soon. Thanks, yeah. good night or goodbye. Goodbye. Charles Bronson is back in front of the cameras after taking a break because of the illness and death of his wife. On the set of one of his latest projects, he spent a rare moment in front of our cameras with Sherry Sylvester. I used to come down here when I was in the Air Force over at Kingman, Arizona. And it's all changed. You see that building? That was like a new... I'm talking to you. That building was like new when I first came here. The buildings around his Los Angeles film set may be showing their age, but the years have been kinder to Charles Bronson. At 71, he can still shoot a high-speed chase and is arguably more energetic than his year's younger crew. Okay, guys, let's uh, stand by to move out here. Born Charles Buczynski, he worked in the coal mines with his 14 siblings and served as a tail gunner in the Air Force before coming to Hollywood. His toughness played out on screen in films with tough names. Death Wish, Messenger of Death, Assassination. It may come as a surprise then that this strong, silent type once roomed with comedian Jack Klugman. Of this truly odd couple, Bronson says Klugman was the slob he later played as the TV character Oscar Madison. He played the right part. We worked for the New York Post Office for one Christmas, delivering mail in a Puerto Rican section, special delivery. We'd come back, he'd have blisters on his toes, and he'd take his socks off and put them on the radiator. So he could dry. <laughs> you talk about stink. It's still hanging over a little bit. Donato and Daughter with Dana Delaney is one of many new projects for Bronson. He has completed Seawolf for TNT and is going to work on Death Wish 5. This after years off spent with wife Jill Ireland before she died of cancer in 1990. You still think about it? Oh, yeah. All her stuff is still there. Her clothes and makeup and the whole thing is still there. She was far brighter than me. She had many talents, you know. She could paint, sing, act. She does a lot of things. She, she used to do work on stage and ice skates, roller skates, everything. Do you think you'll ever remarry? No way. Not because it was so bad, but because it was so nice I could never if I married again, I would make, be making comparisons. It would be terrible. Ireland wrote of her bout with cancer and of her life with Bronson in the bestseller Life Wish, one of three books he has never read. If things ever get a little dull, then maybe I'll read them, but otherwise I won't. When I say dull, I mean the memory of Jill and those experiences. Sherry Sylvester, CNN Entertainment News, Hollywood.